Welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jake Hill. And this week we turn our attention to movies, and the comics that inspired them, and the movies that inspired those comics. Excelsior. So throughout the time of, well, the entirety of our tenure on this podcast, we haven't really talked about any of the non-comics Marvel media, which there's been a lot of, although significantly less considering we took over during the the height of lockdown pandemic times. (laughs) Yeah, I'm always scared about saying something like that in case there's a a second one and that makes the first one look uh, weak in comparison. Uh, And we talk about the movies in relation to stuff like I, in all that time talking about the Guardians, I spent a lot of time complaining about those movies, which I quite like. Uh, But you're right, we've never taken like an episode to focus on uh, non-comics media, which I guess is my preference, but mm-hmm. it's fun to uh, to take a step uh, into that world uh, in moderation, like not yeah. at the expense of the comics, which are what I'm more passionate about. Yeah. I also think that we, if listeners have noticed, have a little bit more trouble being on the timely end, and a lot of movie and TV discourse is be as timely as possible. You know, so you're talking about it during the height and when everyone's watching it or whatever. And we are not not necessarily as interested in that as we could be. But I mean, oh, well, it happens. But this way we can take kind of a longer look at stuff and be like, well, we've sat with it for a while. What do we think? Etc. Etc. So today we are going to be going over all of the stuff that's come out for Marvel in 2021 and dipping our toes a little bit into 2020. But there really wasn't all that much in 2020. Uh, so, Jake, do you want to kind of go over like just the list of stuff that's come out? Uh, sure. Now, I'm or also do we want to do it as we go? I mean, we could do it as we go. I was just opening up my letterbox actually because I have all of my MCU movies ranked on that. Oh. Um, not the shows. And we're talking about a couple of MCU movies that uh, we saw. So I guess for me, a funny slash sad slash like desperate and sweaty thing that um, I do is when the first Iron Man movie came out and the MCU was starting, I was real excited because to me that I felt like, uh, really, Iron Man gets a movie now? That's kind of like unusual, and I'm a big Marvel fan. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm very excited, and I go see it, and I loved it. I saw it like 10 times. And then uh, a bunch of MCU movies uh, came out. I was an undergrad in college when the first ones were coming out. So I'd see them with my college friends at our local multiplex, and then I would go home for like a break, and I'd see them again with my dad in like fancy IMAX and get fancy popcorn at the Nice Theater. Mm -hmm. But so I was seeing every MCU release in theaters, and um, often multiple times. This wasn't like a point of pride for me, but it was kind of like a fun habit of not missing them. And then uh, when I moved out to Ohio, I made a Marvel friend, and it was our tradition to go see them opening weekend together. So when the COVID lockdown happens, I'm kind of resigned like, oh, I guess I'm not going to leave my house to see Marvel movies. But so far, I have managed to see the two uh, major theatrical releases. I saw Black Widow. We bought a, my, I, my buddy and I bought in pay-per-view together. We did it at his house. And uh, Shang-Chi we caught at a drive-in, and I drove with that buddy, and we, we shared a drive-in car. Wow. And yeah. And so uh, my my MCU theatrical release record remains unbroken. And it's like this weird point of contention because I again, it's not like I um, the the loyalty or the point of personal pride is so high. It's just like habit. And I guess uh, breaking it. I'm like superstitious. I don't want to break my streak. Yeah, I, I broke my streak with Black Widow. I didn't see it until it came out on. Uh, well, 
in order to watch it for this, my Blu-ray from the library did not arrive because I was so far down the list and no one seems to be shipping it. Uh, so I had to watch it on Disney+, Plus. Uh, but I didn't watch it in the pay-per-view on Disney+. Plus. So since I don't Captain think America... Well, yeah. But I mean, like, since Captain America... Uh, the first one I saw every movie in theaters I even caught Age of Ultron the last day it was showing on one of our theaters uh, almost missed that one but every other one I've seen in theaters except for Black Widow uh, and that's been the first one I've seen out of order actually since Captain America so did you just watch Black Widow? yeah I just watched Black Widow uh, and I watched but I watched Shang-Chi, Shang-Chi in, in theaters with my friend well, Black Widow is a good place to start then. Um, in the big scheme of like Marvel movies, where do you put Black Widow? Um, towards the I top, would, towards the bottom? Uh, towards the middle. Uh, I the had middle. a lot of yeah, I had a lot of fun with it, but I definitely didn't see it as one of the ones that I'm like I want to return to this one and rewatch it and watch it over and over again, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it was just. I mean, it was fine. It was good. It. I enjoyed the first ha- uh, the first act. I think maybe the most. The rest kind of felt, you know, it was a gen. Not. I don't want to say generic, but it reminded me of like the Phase Two Marvel movies more than like Phase Three or I guess it's the start of Phase Four. But it it just reminded me of just kind of a you know it was fine. It was fun. Script felt a little weak. Your lack of enthusiasm uh, reflects my own. I have it. Uh, I have all the 25 theatrically released Marvel movies ranked on a list. I got Black Widow at number 17. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, pretty close to the bottom. And a bunch of that is I never loved Black Widow as a character all that much. I feel like she was always a pretty thin character. And then yeah, um, and what? Yeah, and what I what I what little I've said this before, but what little there is on the page is all pretty sexist. And the movies did their best to try to like uh, take some of the sexism out of the character. And then she was left even thinner than ever before. There's like nothing to Black Widow. Yeah. And Scarlett Johan, I guess a really good actor could have anchored that movie, but Scarlett Johansson uh, wasn't that actor, at least not for me. Which is also weird because I thought I, I was like I must not like Scarlett Johansson that much anymore. And then I watched um I just saw Hail Caesar, the Coen Brothers movie, mm-hmm. and I loved her in that. She was super fun and dialed in. And so I, I think this just reflects a combination of um there's not much of the Black Widow character as written, and uh, Scarlett Johansson shows up and she's like so what should I do with this? And nobody has any direction for her either. Because when she has a good script and a good direction, I find her very compelling on screen. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I think this was her best Black Widow, you know, her performance. performance of, yeah. I wouldn't even, I would maybe put it number three at the highest. Her best one with a bullet is uh, the Winter Soldier performance where she's really fun and has a pretty good script. I think she's oh, pretty yeah, fun she in the first in Avengers that. movie. I think she's pretty fun in the last Avengers movie where she uh, sacrifices herself nobly. Like, I think she's good in it, even if I think that uh, that was kind of an underbaked story. But, 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 the biggest cardinal sin the Black Widow movie uh, committed mm-hmm. is, I think if you're going to make your argument in a superhero universe for Black Widow being a compelling character to uh, follow, you have to make an argument about the universe, the superhero universe she exists in. And nothing about the villain or the situation in that movie lent itself, like, uh, the version of Taskmaster, which... Oh my my love for Taskmaster is well known. I'm actually not. I don't want to get that deep into it. I, uh, the portrayal of the movie was um, not very engaging, to say. It was uh, Deadpool from Wolverine Origins. 
Yes, but that's done actually, better, slightly better. But but like almost ex- they they took a very vibrant character and made them exactly as like gray and beige as uh, Ryan Reynolds Deadpool and X Men Origins Wolverine. Mm-hmm. That's exactly you're exactly right. But I think the biggest sin is that the bad guy was just like a guy in a suit on a evil helicarrier basically, and then they blow up the helicarrier. <laughs> and yeah. and He's the guy's name compelling. was like General. Ivan, or some name that an American scriptwriter would give a Russian bad guy, but just like I don't know, give me a cyborg, give me a werebear, give me witches, give me like it's a superhero universe. And the fun thing about Black Widow should be that, um, as a really intelligent and savvy agent, she has to overcome like a situations where she's way outclassed. And in this, I was like, yeah, she could beat up this guy at any point. I guess he has like nano machines or some like boring James Bond gadgets or whatever. And what's kind of interesting too is that she we never actually know what her powers are it's kind of implied through the opening montage that you know stuff was done to all the the girls in the red room and you know they were given some sort of enhancements in order to make sure that they were the best spies and assassins in the world but we never really learned what happened with any of them no no details no like getting into the nitty-gritty and that i think would have been interesting also because then you're getting more back to the comic book stuff instead of just she shoot good. I I have a pal who has another movie podcast, and um, what he had to say about Black Widow, which I can't stop thinking about, is that um, the fact that at the end of the movie, um, the bad guy had like 50 whim- brainwashed women as his uh, assassins who Black Widow had to rescue mm-hmm. – um, and how every that was the most like diverse group of people in the movie. There was like a black Black Widow and or a, uh, an Asian Black Widow and a Latin American Black Widow is like really what Kevin Feige themes, seems to think feminism is. It's just like when there's a crowd of brainwashed super assassins, that's when everyone gets to be from every country in the world. But not uh, when not not a main character with lines. No. And um, I that that is or real, agency. Yeah. They and, and same thing with a lot of yeah, just a real mess of a movie which uh, I, we, I I've mostly been criticizing, which was only saved by uh, Florence Harbor, Florence Harbor, Florence Pugh and David Harbour's performances, who were like funny and um, the entire movie I was just like, where's the why is anyone in this movie except for Florence Pugh? Give me a Florence Pugh solo movie and they would be sparkling. She's so fantastic. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, so for anyone, I know we're like eleven minutes in or whatever. But we're going to try to keep this spoiler light, but we'll probably end up dipping into spoilers for almost everything that we're talking about. So Yeah, I'm trying not to give away any uh, critical, hard-to-predict betrayals or anything, but uh, the Black Widow movie was fairly uh, formulaic, I think. Yeah, it was pretty pretty okay. I was also, I mean, those, those stingers at the end of the movies are usually pretty nothing nowadays i always got really excited for them during the build up to ultron i was like what are they going to build up next but now i'm just <laughs> yeah. like oh, it's there i'm waiting for the fun one uh, and i enjoy seeing like what they're teasing but this one was it's a big old nothing burger i didn't like it I yeah maybe like it'll pay it. off and maybe it won't i uh nah, it i mean it i don't care if it pays off <laughs> that's my problem i was watching it, i'm like whatever i don't like this character I'm gonna. So I, what I think I'm gonna do is, if it's an MCU thing that I don't like, I'm gonna pitch my uh, better version or sequel or something. Mm-hmm. Black Widow two. Florence Pugh as the new Black Widow gets captured by Arcade, played by Neil Patrick Harris, and trapped in like his deadly labyrinth and with like figures from her past. And it's like a uh, 
Squid Game, Hunger Games, Battle Royale, uh, like, evil trap thing, but with, like, a cackling supervillain and uh, Florence Pugh being cool and kind of awkward and weird. That's my that's my sequel. Yeah, I think that would be pretty cool. I would give I would it would give Black Widow something something fun to do. Just give her anything to do. Just like uh, putting her in like gray cities, parkouring. Ugh, I could complain about this for hours, and I'll try not <laughs> to. Because a movie that I actually liked um, quite a bit was the other recent Marvel release, which was Shang Chi. Yeah, and every time they said Shang Chi, I'm like, oh. Well, I've been saying it wrong, and I should have realized a little bit earlier that Shang-Chi is a very American way of saying it, because I, I took Mandarin for four years in, in high school, so we learned all about that. pronunciation. So even though I'm not actually fluent or good at speaking Mandarin in any any way, I do know how to pronounce most things, like if it's written out in, in pinyin, so... <laughs> I should have been like, oh, it's a long A, not a eh. All of that is, uh, <laughs> none of those are skills I have, and I'm no good with languages. <laughs> and I pronounce everything in my American accent, but I will do my best to uh, to be polite while apologizing for the reality, which is this, that I have the accent that I have. Um, but I like Shang-Chi enough that I put it at number 10 on my overall MCU list, so it it's just squeaks into the top 10. Oh, that's pretty high, yeah. Yeah, it is pretty high. It, it has a lot of the problems of these movies are on a formula and they're like uh, fast food. Yeah, and they're not really allowed to do more. Yeah, and I like ate, I've eaten fast food this week and I got a McDonald's burger and uh, it was like chemically tested and focus group uh, tested until it was like uh, tasting perfectly like a McDonald's burger. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, and it was, uh, and the reliability yeah. uh, gave me uh, comfort and pleasure. And that's kind of you know how I exactly feel about what you're going to get out of it. And if it was different, you'd be like, this isn't a McDonald's burger. Right. Uh, even if it was better. And Shang-Chi was a lot like that, except um, I liked all the components. Like, if mm-hmm. you've got to, like, um, there's always a sidekick in those Marvel movies, and they've always got to be like, well, that just happened after the superhero stuff happens around them yeah. to kind of like, and it's like, it's kind of grating, but they had Aquafina doing it in Shang-Chi, and Aquafina is lovely and charismatic, so I thought that she delivered those jokes as well as anyone could be expected to. And you're going to have a mentor figure who's got to say all of the malarkey about uh, the superhero universe, and since the ancient days, the Celestials, whatever, whatever, and they yep. got freaking Michelle Yeoh. She's got, she could put Gravitas in a menu. <laughs> you know and uh, and tony lung as the mandarin like uh that guy put so much like uh, he made all the same mistakes every marvel villain makes but he put so much uh sadness and pathos into the the portrayal that i thought he was as good as uh tom hiddleston loki like he was he, it was such a good cast the art design was good the fantasy stuff looked cool it was everything if i'm gonna go out to see a similar marvel movie i want it to be done like really precisely and they totally like played the hits in a cool way yeah i gotta agree uh i was gonna say tony lung was probably my the standout performance for me in the in the movie even if you know at the end it's the end the final third basically i loved the first two-thirds of the movie even if i had some quibbles within it and i was like middling to okay on the last third or on the last act but that's okay uh, because I had a, a lot of fun with it. Uh, it's because the Marvel movies don't know how to end it. They end it in the same way. <laughs> they all end with the same kind of stuff. Only this time, instead of giant sky beams, it was a bunch of CGI fighting. <laughs> yeah, which I and I thought the CGI fighting looked cool. It was I guess gorgeous. The, but the other it was thing that worked for me 
and, and I without a again we're trying to avoid uh, being too explicit with mm-hmm. specific movie spoilers, but there's a pattern where the the more compelling Marvel villains reach a point in the movie where they um, have to just like snap and kill somebody likable or uh, just do something crazy so that we want them to be defeated by the hero, and that's often kind of unconvincing. Yeah, like this movie was for most of its run superhero level you know antics but it was a family drama uh and they were really dialing into that and then they it kind of got away from there by the end and i think well, the I was family gonna, drama stuff was more compelling i thought that tony lung really sold me on like the eldritch lovecraftian horror of his situation and um you could uh, and i understood why he was like misguided and uh and maddened because of the dark oh, yeah. forces he was dealing mm-hmm. with. I just feel like Marvel movies never sell me on that. It's always like, uh, well, they crave power, so they're going to grab the magic uh, gem. Okay. And, and Tony Lung really had this like interesting supernatural possession thing where you so you watch yes. him slowly unravel, and you kind of didn't realize it was happening before before it was too late. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, um, yeah, all those subtleties just like made – again, that's why like – uh, a competently put together movie with fantastic actors can like really anchor that Marvel formula, and you can do it again and again and again as long as actors are finding their own personal focus. Mm-hmm. Had one of my favorite cameos in a long time too. Although I guess it was more than a cameo. I had fun with it. I had fun with it. Uh, um, I it think I know just... what you're referring to, but you're playing coy, so I'm not going to ask you to be specific. <laughs> um, instead, yeah. I'm just going to mention that. Um, by the time this episode is out, um, Eternals sh- should be playing in theaters, and we've probably seen it at this point, right? Uh, probably. I don't know. Uh, I mean, as of recording, I have not seen Eternals yet. I have not uh, seen Eternals yet of recording either. Yeah. So I think let's um, we're probably going to have to commit to like an Eternal Mania post movie where we read the comic and I tell you how much I hate the Eternals or why I was so wrong for hating the Eternals this entire time. Yeah. That's that. That's kind of what we're get gunning for for this movie. If it was any other movie, we probably would be a little more. We haven't seen it. We might talk about it later. But the Eternals, with with Jake's immense dis distaste for the property, and the fact that Kieran Gillen is currently writing a series, means we have to talk about it. A series that I'm like uh, lukewarm on right now, and I'm going to reread it because me being lukewarm in a Kieran Gillen series is uh, almost unprecedented, and. Um... Yeah, and it's the Eternals. Just like, I, yeah. do I hate the Eternals more than I love Kieran Gillen's writing? We will learn. We will find out. And then the other movie that is not out as of recording or release uh, is Spider-Man No Way Home. I got no thoughts on it. I mean, I try to reserve my thoughts for all of these movies until I actually see them. And I actually avoid looking at trailers online because I like watching trailers in movie theaters. I know a lot of people are like, why do I have to sit through 20 minutes of trailers? I'm like, Not me. I, love I love sitting tra- through 20 minutes of trailers. Me too. And I, I, before COVID, I went to the movie theater across the street from my house so often that I would see the same trailers for months yeah. because I would watch a movie multiple times a week there. Wow. I, yeah, I love going to the movies and it's way cheap in Ohio and, um, and yeah, and it's great. I am really a Grinch about Spider-Man No Way Home. I hate it so far, and when I have, but maybe it'll. I, I would be delighted to be uh, proven wrong. But right now, it's rubbing me the wrong way, giving me a bad taste. Mm. It all started with uh, when they uh, brought back uh, J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson. <laughs> and I, I like that... I want I okay. I still haven't seen the trailer, so. Oh well, I don't know. Uh, he showed up in the post-credit scene of the last. Uh, 
yeah. Tom Holland Spider-Man. And I just think that that casting is like creatively bankrupt in a way that makes me feel even like more cynical than the the rest of the Marvel movie exercise. Like mm-hmm. you would have preferred that he showed up in like the Into the Spider-Verse sequel. Like I guess more perhaps sense there. Yeah, but also don't do a Spider-Verse movie. It's like the third Spider-Man movie in this trilo- in this MCU trilogy, and we just had a Spider-Verse movie that was a goddamn masterpiece. The- well, that's what I meant, the sequel to that movie. Oh, yeah, you could put him in as a voice in the sequel to the cartoon yeah. movie, but the idea that you would recast Spider-Man and all his supporting cast, and uh, you do these vastly different takes, but then like you accept that J.K. Simmons is the only person who can do Jonah, I just like don't understand why you would even make a movie at that point. Mm. If you just uh, are doing a worse version of the like the earlier movie had like a great script and everything again if in the new one like uh, jk simmons is given the the center stage and it's like his movie and it's a goddamn masterpiece i'll eat my words but that doesn't seem to be what they're doing based on how they're marketing it and and how people are receiving it and before everyone's like but surely jk simmons is the only person who could play j jonah jameson in an mcu marvel movie i have Mm -hmm. to say to you Mark Marin. I don't know who that is. I mean, uh, Slappa, he was uh, in Glow on Netflix. He uh, stand up. He invented. He had the first podcast. Oh. Is a joke that he uh, a joke that I've heard him tell before. But he's been podcasting for more than ten years. Okay. Yeah. He was like a very early adopter of the format. He's got. A, he looks great with a big mustache. He's like an angry New Yorker. Just like um, I could see him being a sleazy modern media guy in the same way that the J.K. Simmons version of Jonah seems so um, like old old school and antiquated. You know? Yeah, old school newspaper man who's kind of forced into new school media. Yeah, I think uh, that Mark Maron would uh, do that transition in a way that J.K. Simmons is just going to be asked to play the hits and do his Jonah yeah. thing again. And yeah, and then they're doing Spider-Verse and they're bringing back out. It turns out, like, at least my Twitter is fucking delighted by um, that sort of nostalgic filmmaking and storytelling. But I just think that there's so many Spider-Man movies that they haven't made yet that I don't know why we're making the same one again. We, we haven't gotten the living brain yet. Yeah, we haven't gotten the Living Brain. <laughs> I, I would watch a Living Brain movie. I and and we're also like just the Spider-Man franchise is like all of the grossest Hollywood because then like I was gonna say we haven't gotten a Morbius movie yet, but then I remembered we're getting a Jared Leto Morbius <laughs> solo movie, but we haven't gotten just like a where's the movie where Tom Holland's gotta like fight spooky Draculas? That's a Spider-Man movie I'd watch. Where's the movie where he's being hunted by uh, the most dangerous game guy? Right? Oh oh shit! Yeah, they haven't done Craven. We could get Craven in this Craven. There's like a better. You could do a better lizard movie because that one wasn't very well loved. Certainly, better electro movie. Yeah, you could certainly do a better electro movie. There's like a. There's tons of it. They still haven't. I've, I mean, uh, Venom Let There Be Carnage is out, and I have not seen it yet. But uh, they still haven't done a good Venom Carnage movie, as, as far as I've seen. You know, I didn't even consider Venom on this list. And I probably should have, even though it's not, because it is a Marvel movie, but it's not um, uh, d- Disney. Be careful. Yeah, it's not uh, distributed by the Disney Corporation, but uh, according to uh, what I've heard about the movie, I think it is more tied to the MCU than you may realize. Well, okay. Cool beans. <laughs> I haven't seen either one. Yeah, that's enough. I feel like we're ranting a lot about uh, movies we haven't seen yet, but something I have seen and uh, had a lot of opinions on was, uh, did we ever talk about WandaVision, Elias? On the podcast or outside of the podcast? I don't even remember talking to you about it outside the podcast. I think we we talked a little bit about it outside because I was catching up and I was live. I was live. Not. I'm like, I didn't tweet. 
I didn't blog. Live messaging? Live messaging. As I went, just with my reactions. Oh, that's right, that's right. That wasn't a, much of a conversation. That was just me waking up one morning and having, like, 70 mixed texts from you. <laughs> that was just like, oh my god, really? It was her? Yeah. <laughs> it was Old Man Jenkins the whole time? Well, Old Woman Agatha. Yeah. I, for the most part, had a delightful time with WandaVision. This is this was not me pausing because of that. That was me pausing because uh, I had to catch my breath. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I really I really enjoyed WandaVision. Uh, I know people had issues with the ending, like the I last couple those, episodes, and I agree that the last couple of episodes kind of got away from what was good and interesting about the series as a whole. But I really I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, I have a lot of quibbles with like the ending, ending like the, the the denouement. I'm like seriously, seriously. Yeah, I that um, was weak sauce, and I don't know what they were thinking with that. It well, it, it, at the end, it felt more like a series of interesting scenes and situations than a story, really, because the ending didn't really resolve anything satisfactorily to me. Yeah, but I actually really loved that um, that tone for a uh, Scarlet Witch story, mm-hmm. and I like Pretender. the Pretender. Yeah, 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 and that makes I feel like that puts her in a more compelling place uh, in both the, the the live action and the comic book ver- uh, versions of the story, where it gives her a lot of agency, and she's the Scarlet Witch. The whole like witch stories are about uh, women who wield magic and are like persecuted, right? So get, make, make her persecuted, put her on the run. She's like a cool renegade and she's like uh, do, helping people undercover as she's like being hunted. That worked for the Hulk for like 50 years. Give it to Scarlet Witch. That's cool. Yeah, that's cool. And I kind of hope that in whatever comes next with her, they dial in a little more to like what happened, like, her thoughts on what happened in WandaVision, because at the end, there's sort of a bit of a, well, she's the hero, therefore we got to put everything aside instead of grappling with, well, here are the moral complexities of this series. I hope yeah. that becomes part of her character going forward, like it informs what she's doing, and it's not just, I'm sad that I lost Vision again. Yeah, although I, I almost would rather that be a very small part of it just because they've really lost my trust in um, grappling with the morality. It's just like, that's less interesting to me. You're right. Grappling with the morality is a lot less interesting to me than like grappling with the hubris. That's like a more great power Mm. responsibility. Like um, when you are that powerful, how, what are you obligated to do and how are you obligated to act more than like, I don't know, is it wrong to kill a guy if he's going to kill, like just doing trolley problems a hundred times with the Joker is like not that interesting to me. Yeah. And I, I, but I don't think like the morality of WandaVision was trolley problem esque. By the end, it's like, well, she did the thing, so now, what, what are other? How are we supposed to feel about the thing she did? I, think I mean, it's an interesting I, I, thing I, I to guess, explore. I guess it's not that interesting to me. I think she should feel bad. She like uh, either made a mistake or did something really bad on purpose and should uh, take responsibility for it. But like, but the show way, doesn't see the show doesn't see it that way, and that's a problem. Right, and that's why I'm not interested in that story anymore because the show already kind of like didn't tell that story. So I don't want like another story to don't tell stories that are just about fixing bad stories. Just like tell more good ones. And yeah. it left her in an interesting enough place that they could like go in a completely more interesting direction. You know what I want? Maybe not want? with Wanda. I want a musical. Yeah. If she, if she could sing, I bet. Uh... No, I want, I want a musical from the team that did this, uh, at least the music to this, because I had so much fun with all of the parody uh, you know, theme songs. Uh, well, I just uh, looked it up to uh, 
to verify. And sure enough, uh, all that music was written by the married couple that wrote all the music to Disney's Frozen. Ah, that would do it. That would do it. Yeah, they certainly can do a catchy song. But yeah, like uh, WandaVision, I really liked it as like an experimental, weird, fun a piece of television, and then it didn't end up really being a story. But I had fun on the ride. But you know, I did not even have fun on the ride with Falcon and Winter Soldier. It felt like a six-hour, just regular MCU movie, which, you know what? Fine. I actually enjoyed it more than I think other people did. Uh, but I admit that I'm like, you know, I'm glad I saw it once. I don't really need to return to it again. Oh, I love it. If there's it. a second season, I would watch it and i would hope that they lean would lean into the buddy comedy aspects of it if i was ranking the the disney plus shows along with the feature-length movies uh falcon and winter soldier would be down with like iron man 2 incredible hulk in like the garbage pit i thought it was so bad part of it is although my very favorite marvel movie is captain america winter soldier i I want to put this delicately so as not to offend, but I um, don't much care for the uh, going-ons of the uh, Captain America part of the fandom. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what you I, mean. <laughs> like, um, I, I'm interested in conflict, and I feel like um, when we were reading uh, Silver Surfer Elegy. A Requiem. Th- so yes, Requiem. How could I mix up a Requiem and an Elegy? <laughs> When we were reading a Silver Surfer Requiem, um, there was a lot of interesting conflict in that, but th- there wasn't a lot of like moralizing. There wasn't a lot of Silver Surfer being like, well, is this the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? Mm-hmm. And I think that that would be a great tone in Captain America because I think that uh, sometimes the right thing is easy to know right from wrong and it's hard to do. And that's like the strength of, the, of a Captain America story. And that show was like so uncinematic and boring to watch for me that I just spent time like poking holes in it in like the least uh, the most like boring cinema way possible mm, like yeah. I, I, I thought the writing was just it was stupid like where it, <laughs> I can't disagree with you there <laughs> where it totally lost me I mean I was already lost in the first episode as you might remember when I freaked out about uh, there was an the, entire like the, three the scenes about boat. the shrimping boat There's the right, <laughs> I wanna, this isn't Forrest Gump why do we care about Falcon's family's shrimping boat? They should be running a bird rescue uh, sanctuary or something. It's a comic book. Make it stupid and silly and fun. All right. But where they really lost me was in the episode where so they're like looking for the bad guy and they're 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 asking a bunch of her followers and supporters where she's hiding out. Something that they, they are not likely to want to do. And Bucky and Sam are just like walking through this orphanage, being like, "Hey, anyone seen the bad guy?" And they're all <laughs> oh saying, "Oh my god, nope. yeah." And meanwhile, Baron Zemo shows up, and he just brought, like, a $20 bill and a couple of candy pieces of candy, and he bribes some children for the information. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, but, but it doesn't matter because um, the Falcon and Winter Soldier, by asking their questions so bluntly, tipped the bad guy off that they were coming and let her, like, uh, escape anyway. And I was just like, why are we even watching the show if the bad guy is the only person smart enough to think to bring $20 to the orphans and refugees who have the information you want? And here's Falcon and Winter Soldier. They just expected that all these orphans out of, like, the goodness of their heart will agree with the morality of these Imperial American symbols? I do not understand what this show is about. Every scene was like that to me. I feel yeah. like I'm leaving you flabbergasted. I just I'm ranting now. I just really didn't like uh, <laughs> Falcon and Winter Soldier, and I thought that the um, it kept on taking these self serious stabs at like 
I don't know, like solving racism or like talking about the inherent racism in superheroing, but I'm not sure what it had to say or what its conclusion was. And I don't know why it felt so obligated to talk about those heavy themes, especially if it was just going to kind of like ask a lot of questions and not give answers. It Yeah, and it wasn't ambitious in the way it tried to ask those questions. Like Everything seems so muddied, but not in a, you know, this is complicated because there are all these contributing factors and like they're trying and like it's, it's difficult to untangle complicated and muddy. It was like someone dropped an ice cream cone into a, a puddle of water and was like, look how muddy this is. And I'm like, all right, cool. You drop some ice cream in, in, uh, in some water. It's pretty obvious what you were doing. There, like, uh, or the first episode asks the question, or just points out, like, even a superhero can't get a loan because he's black, and then I'm like, yeah, and and the show did not uh, really have anything to say. It was just like, uh, uh, intersectional blackness and superheroing in America sure is tough. And I'm like, but there isn't really superheroing in America, so this is just like a metaphor for anything. Yeah, and then they kind of leave uh, Isaiah Bradley out the cold for most of it yeah i mean yeah i guess the most exciting stuff for me is like the mcu machinations of putting together my young avengers that i'm kind of having fun with <laughs> just yeah and if that's the it, best i can say for your show that's that's uh i think that's sad yeah i saw i like i said i think i enjoyed it a lot more than you did but i couldn't tell you exactly why because i have a lot of criticisms for most of that show and mostly in like the scripting department uh, and like the the things it was trying to say, because it's not like it was doing something and then you're reading into it and you're like, well, this says X about what. No, no, they were very explicit about what they were trying to say. And we're like, sure, but it feels like you don't really understand this. And I'm reading a Nick Spencer Captain America comic. I'm trying to brainstorm. I was trying to think of things I liked in that show, and all of them happened in the first episode. I'm like, I liked Bat Rock. That was fun when they chased Bat Rock. Um, there was that cute Japanese girl that Bucky went on a date with. She was really cool. I, if, they'll give me a show more about her. And that old guy who he befriended. I liked all the sad Bucky in New York stuff. That was kind of compelling. But yeah, the mystery and the politics were nothing to me. Big old, big old block of nothing. Goose egg. Yeah. Big old goose egg. Yeah, but then something that was not a big old nothing to me that I had a, a really weird good time with was Loki. Yeah. I think that with Loki, there were some elements that they didn't go far enough on in terms of like what they started to do and then they never continued it. And not from like a plot perspective. I mean, from like a character perspective, like some some decisions and uh and i'm not going to be coy with this one i'm specifically around uh loki's gender fluidity and you know and sexuality like they pay lip service to it in a way that other people have commented that's like you could just cut that out for when it gets played in china or wherever there are large censors it feels like they didn't commit to what they wanted to do and what they were pushing to do and that fe- and I, I felt that during the show but it didn't take away from the show in the same way. It was just like I noticed it, and it was kind of sitting there the whole time. But I had a, I had a lot of fun with Loki. Everything you're talking about is, um, is like trimming to me. It's like character stuff. But the show was about stuff at the core. I felt the mystery was pretty compelling, and more importantly, like the character work was compelling all the way through. Mm-hmm. I guess I was thinking. I really, um, Tom Hiddleston is probably one of my MVP standout MCU performances. He has done a bunch of different uh, per- versions of that performance, and they're all cool and good in different ways. We got Owen Wilson. 
Yeah, and then like Owen oh, Wilson, Wilson. Had, and, he, and everyone had like tremendous amounts of chemistry. It wasn't like uh like in Falcon and Winter Soldier, there was a couple of moments. Where I'm like, oh, I could see that maybe one day you guys will like learn to like each. other. But like Loki was just like the minute he meets Owen Wilson, uh, it's smoldering between the two of them. It's just oh, like yeah. uh, you could cut the tension with a knife. Um, also, shout out to um, in the very first episode, um, mm. Loki is uh, ah shoot, what's the name? You gotta of the give ad? me something. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the uh, Eugene Cordero shows up in the very first episode of Loki as one of the guys working at the uh, time at the TVA with the uh, with the Infinity Stones. Yeah, the guy with the Infinity Stones in the drawer. Yeah. That's Eugene, Eugene Cordero, who was Pillboy on The Good Place and voices uh, Ensign Rutherford in Lower Decks, and he's just like huh. the light of my life. And he showed up for one second in Loki, and I made me smile. smile. <laughs> I like him. He's good. I was surprised to see a bunch of Lovecraft Country alumnus here. Um, like, oh sure, uh, yeah. I can't remember her last name. Her, la- her first name is Wonmu. Uh, yeah, I... who played uh, the, the like... Uh... Mosaku. Wonmu Mosaku. There we go. Yeah, yeah, I knew her and uh, from um, Lovecraft Country as well. And then um, Loki, as with the other two, pretty much all the Marvel stuff we're taking with, took a crazy swerve in the last act. Mm-hmm. But unlike the other things, the swerve was so crazy and so unexpected and so just like weird and shocking that it kind of worked for me in a way that the other ones didn't because like wandavision the swerve was that nothing really mattered and wanda kind of sucked and was an asshole yeah and falcon and winter soldier what was the swerve in that i the, guess that people you there think was are no good swerve or bad. well just like a you, people who you think are allies are actually enemies and people you think are enemies are actually allies and yeah, and I motivations guess. are muddy and then none of it really matters because all the morality gets washed out to, to like, ne- yeah. neutral. But then Loki takes this insane swerve of, um, I mean, we'll just talk about it, right? We're bringing in Kang the Conqueror in an insane performance. Mm-hmm. By, played by Jonathan Majors. Oh, right. Also from Lovecraft Country, Jonathan yeah. Majors. I had so much fun watching him that I forgot that we spent literally 20 minutes of him just expositing at us. Yeah, incredibly. <laughs> just like, and, and I also, I know Jonathan Majors, I've seen him in some movies, like I know his face, and I spent the, the entire time being like, I don't know who that actor is, I don't know who the, that this Marvel character is supposed to be, I just was like, gripped by his monologue, and then when it became clear he was Kang, um, I, I was like, this is how we're gonna, because Kang is like... You know, uh, Kang is a, a big Marvel heavy. He's a big part of the cosmology and the story. But, like, he's never been my... F- when he shows up, I don't get excited. I'm like, oh, good, a Kang story. But I'm so excited for Jonathan Majors now. Yeah. And I'm really curious if they're going to have this tie into the Fantastic Four movie that's going to come out at some point. Yeah. I mean, isn't that's too- he Reed Richards' dad? Yes, he is a member of the Richards clan. It gets complicated. <laughs> okay. Uh, he is uh, more properly the, the version of Kang that we know in the six one six Marvel is a descendant of Reed Richards. Right, 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 right. Other way around. Yeah. Right, because it's Iron Lad. Right, and he, and he, they team up. Uh, him, he teams up with uh, Reed's dad and their time traveling buddies together. I don't know um, how that's going to work canonically. I'm more compelled by uh, Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantum Mania, which I am calling my shot here. Think is going to be my new number one best Marvel movie of all time. Eagerly anticipated. Um, has um, has already set up. Uh, Kang is the villain in it. Mm-hmm. But they're also bringing in a young version of Cassie Lang, played by Catherine Newton, who you might know from movies like uh, Blockers and Detective Pikachu. And oh. uh, recent, she was in Freaky recently, where she switched bodies with Vince Vaughn. I did not see that. 
It's on HBO right now if you want to watch it. But um, Isn't that the one where he's like a serial killer and now he's a serial killer in the body of a 17-year-old? Uh-huh. And she is a 17-year-old girl in the body of a freaky serial killer who's played by Vince Vaughn. Okay. Great great premise for a movie. They put it all right out there. But in the comics, the Young Avengers are founded when young Kang comes back in time and then falls in love with Cassie Lang. And they cast a Catherine Newton, who's um like a in her 20s-year-old actor now, right? Mm-hmm. Is a 24-year-old actor across from Jonathan Majors. So there, I think that this is going to be a romance. I think Kang's going to come back in time, and then it's going to be uh, Catherine Newton being like, Dad, I'm not a little kid anymore. I can date a supervillain if I want. <laughs> and I think that's... Scott Lang's going to have to punch her... <laughs> punch, punch his daughter's <laughs> supervillain boyfriend. Yeah, and that's that's the stuff I go to the movies to see, and that's the stuff I pick up Marvel comics to see. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I, but so I, yeah, yeah, Loki just like what a swerve, uh, and uh, manage maintain the fun and the surprise all the way through, even if it was like a little just as messy as the other things. Yeah, and it helps that you know we're now getting a second season. That's the first. I think that's the first of the Disney Plus shows that that got a, a second season. I don't think WandaVision or Falcon and Winter Soldier have a second part to them. No, WandaVision is gonna. They're gonna pick up on the threads in the Doctor Strange movie. They said, and Falcon mm-hmm. and Winter Soldier. They're gonna pick up the threads in the next Captain America movie. Okay, but Fair I enough. guess Loki is no longer gonna be in Love and Thunder or the or upcoming Thor stuff. So I guess this is where he's at now. Well, yeah, because he's dead or know. something. Yeah. Or something. Yeah, dead or something. And the only reason Loki exists is because uh, Endgame was like, mm, whoopsies. I also, so something, in talking about Marvel, MCU stuff, I um, I get, I used to I used to work for CBR and other similar sites, so I, I was part of the group of people creating this sort of uh, content, and content it mm-hmm. was. And that was a discouraging time in my life. And the types of stories that get the most traffic and everything are not the types of stories that I find the most interesting. So there have been years of headlines picking up on every single rumor about how, like, the way that the X-Men are going to one day get integrated into the MCU is it's going to turn out that there is a parallel reality and uh, the multiverse. And I'm just like, why is this even fun to predict for people? There's no real evidence of this. We're just writing our own stories, which is fun, but then take ownership over your ideas. And don't mm-hmm. pretend that, like, because Evan Peters was seen having lunch with uh, this prominent producer that it's just like that stuff bores me. Loki managed to make that sort of, like, multiverse stuff uh, exciting to me again because it just, like, crackled. Hmm. That makes sense. I don't have much more to say about Loki <laughs> just because I'm, like, I'm thinking I'm just thinking towards the next the next season already because sure. I had so much fun with the current season. It was just I could watch another another season of uh Tom Hiddleston and uh, crap, Owen Wilson just running around fucking about in time. Uh, only this time, Tom Hiddleston is on uh, the shoes on the other foot. Sure, that's a that's a great pitch. I yeah, whatever they do, I uh, I liked it, what it looked like. I liked its vibe. Yeah, whatever they want to do, I'm I'm back. As long yeah. as long as I'm having fun, I don't mind if it's like a perpetual motion machine. As long as I'm having fun with the motion. Mm-hmm. And because of the events of Loki. They then set up for, well, now there's a multiverse. Let's explore some of those stories in What If, which I cannot tell you how, like, floored I was by the first episode. Not the first episode, just, like, the opening. Uh Uh-huh. 
because one, they got Jeffrey Wright to play the Watcher, which is great casting, perfect casting. He he was and, my pick for Professor X, but he's a great Watcher too. Mm-hmm. And it felt like I was watching a classic anthology series. They, you're right. That's a great great call. They got such. Say what you will about like the episodes themselves, and with most anthologies, they will vary episode to episode. Sure. But I really loved the way they crafted that opening monologue. It sucks you in. It makes you want to see more of these adventures and get just more little snippets of of different things. And I never realized that like the title "What If" could lend itself so well to that style of monologue instead of just a. Uh, you know, a general question. I was, I mean, did I like what if? Yeah, I agree with everything <laughs> you're saying. And um, I, I'm particularly struck by, you're right, it does feel, it feels like at the beat when Rod Sterling welcomes you to the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. And that's actually kind of like um, making me forgive some of its uh, shortcomings a little bit more because there's, if you get like two classic episodes of the Twilight Zone out of out of 10, the percentage isn't great, but who, who cares, right? You'll, you'll watch those two again and again and again. Yeah. And I I had fun with what if the animation style is like I don't know what's happening in animation right now. I really miss animation from when we were kids. I think that looks better. I think some of the episodes looked better than others. It just some of them felt a little too stiff, but I appreciated the the style, the like making it as stylized as it was so that it's not just the general normal, you know, Disney seed 3D CG. Right. It had a little bit more of a comic book look, and then it's specifically mm-hmm. like a, like and the MCU comic tie-ins, it looked like. Yeah. Which yeah, are very, did. like, Steve Epting-inspired. Mm-hmm. And, like, that sort of art. Yeah. I also... Where I found the biggest inconsistency, actually, was in the voice acting. There was a couple voice actors <laughs> throughout the seri- season that I thought um were really strong, but most of them were, like, middling to distractingly bad. So, like, that first Captain America episode, there was, like, not a single voice performance that was, like, even competent. Wow. Like, everything was, like, distractingly bad, and I had to forgive it to get it through it. And then, like, um, in the second one where Black Panther becomes Star-Lord, like, I love Chadwick Boseman in Black Panther and his other live-action performances. It's sad that he's no longer with us, but he wasn't... I don't think he was directed very well as a voice actor. I, in fact, was so uh, flustered by the bad voice acting that I was like, well, who was the voice director? So I dove really deep into this, and it turns out that um, there is no voice director on What If. There is um, only one overall, like, director who directed every episode. And his name is... Um, like A.C. Bradley? No, it wasn't A.C. Bradley. I looked up... It was a guy who was... Um, it was Brian Andrews was the guy who was kind of the showrunner. And um, and so I, I was looking up what Brian Andrews was doing because maybe he isn't very experienced in cartoons or something. Mm-hmm. No, this guy is quite experienced in cartoons. It turns out that he was a protege of the great Gendy Tartakovsky and was in the art department for Samurai Jack. And he worked on uh, Gendy's more recent series, uh, Primal. He did all of the Hotel Transylvania movies which are underrated but he has been oh he did a uh, batman the animated series wow and uh gendy kartakovsky's clone wars like but um, he's an art direction guy he's not a voice guy exactly and more spe- he transitioned from art direction to being the storyboarder for most mcu movies 
So that makes sense. The big uh, effects-heavy sequences, he's the one who drew the storyboards for. And so that actually explains why there was a bunch of like really gorgeous framing in What If, and um, even if you don't like the aesthetic of the art style, like the... There were some beautiful frames. Uh, yeah, especially um, I thought that the most beautiful sequence uh, slash horrifying was when evil Doctor Strange was summoning and sucking the souls of all these magical creatures. Oh, I thought you were going to say the, the one shot of, of Hawkeye in the zombie universe where he's glow, it's lit from above. There's just this mass of zombies and he's falling towards them. <laughs> Yeah, Beautiful. I, yeah. So just like a, that's a guy who really knows how to capture a memorable image. But I got a feeling that uh, he was just doing like a really perfunctory workmanlike approach to directing these inexperienced voice actors, and it really showed. Yeah. Um, Josh Brolin reprising his role as Thanos, I thought was a highlight, but that was always a voice performance, so that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I actually thought Clark Gregg was pretty good reprising uh, his Coulson role, and Samuel L. Jackson has done a lot of voice work too, and he was yeah. pretty fun. If there's one unexpected great voice performance that I thought was like way uh, shocked me and batted <laughs> way above its average, mm-hmm. it was Michael Douglas's Hank Pym. Yeah, he had to like be an unhinged, crazy supervillain for a couple of minutes to make you feel it, and I thought he did. <laughs> He did very much sell that. Uh, it was interesting, actually, because both Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr. were not a part of this. So they had, profe- I guess, professional Captain America sounder and uh, Tony Stark sounder. And they did a good job. They captured, you know, as close to their voice versus, you know, versions in other animated media. Totally. And I'm used to, you know, like uh, yeah. the Star Wars cartoons. Uh, they mm-hmm. didn't bring back uh, Harris, uh, Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher for every cartoon. Uh they would have sound alikes. Yeah. I thought the best sound alike actually was they had Lake Bell was voicing uh, Black Widow whenever she would show up. Oh. Instead of Scarlett Johansson. And Lake mm-hmm. Bell plays uh, Poison Ivy on the Harley Quinn cartoon. Oh, that's why the voice was familiar. Uh-huh. And yeah, and obviously she's a very talented, uh, accomplished voice actress. But I thought that was like the weirdest qualitative thing was it turns out just get sound like professional sound alikes that, that are doing a good job. Instead of yeah. these, uh, like uh, Mark Ruffalo... I love Mark Ruffalo, and I'll never like be like, Mark Ruffalo, you messed up, and I'm mad at you. But, like, what the hell were you doing there, Mark Ruffalo? You're better than this. It might have also been if they had potentially a competent voice actor, they probably could have gotten. And I don't want to diss, but, like, someone who this was their job was to just get a good voice performance out of these people instead of a okay one. And one who's, like, used to basically telling all these big stars, no, you did it wrong, give us another take. And that's a, that is a real job on many productions. Like um, yeah. most video games, there is a designated voice director who's working with, video, you know, the, the voice actors in video games. A lot of them are so experienced because it's a small community of professionals who do hundreds of titles a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, it's crazy because Disney is so insistent that they do everything in-house that sometimes they will use like less accomplished professionals that um, don't have their own business or something. And maybe it would be better they if they don't want to pay people for expertise. Yeah, but it I it would be worth it. And why not? Money is not something that the Disney Corporation is lacking. Well, no, they are lacking it. They need all of it, and they don't have all of it yet. <laughs> that's true. That's true. If uh if you look at it that way, that's yeah. true. What was one of your standout what if episodes? My favorite episode there was one episode that half of it was my least favorite and half of it was my most favorite, <laughs> all within one episode. Which one? And, 
and that was the Doctor Strange one. I mm. think that uh, Rachel McAdams is great, and I think that her character in the Marvel is like the worst character in the Marvel universe. I can't believe we're still like ta- I don't even remember her name, but like Rachel, Doctor Rachel McAdams, boring doctor who is a doctor and has no other personality traits besides is Rachel McAdams who is a doctor. Mm-hmm. Watching her die over and over again through time travel for ten minutes was like really tedious, and it bored me to tears. But then once Doctor Strange got to like the creepy temple and he was killing monsters, and and they had to, and it was just all cool Gedi Tartakovsky style animated battles. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, oh wow, this is such, a-. and that's when I looked it up who the guy was, and I was like, that makes sense. Gedi Tartakovsky cartoons are often silent, and uh, everything is expressed through through animation and visuals. And w- once they stopped with the um, Rachel McAdams being like, I don't understand why you don't want me to get in the car, Doctor Strange, for 10 minutes, and they broke into, like, beautiful magic duels. It was the best thing in the world. It looked so good. Did you have a favorite as well? Uh, I, w- I think it was that, that Doctor Strange one, too. It just... I like a good dark morality play. Totally. And that was classic dark morality play. I was going to say, I'm like, I think the weakest one was the... the basically marvel zombies that's the one i was like eh. yeah zombies eh. was in the middle for me they had fun with the premise they kept it kind of light they got to highlight some bit players in the mcu who i yeah. really like like um party thor uh, was great <laughs> and uh yeah uh, but david dalmatian getting to like be his ant-man character but to get more screen time was was nice i love david dalmatian mm-hmm. yeah he's the more the more guy. of him was good he he did feel a little out of place yeah, Just because I, there were so many quippy characters. Yeah, that, they like were all the so comic goofy. relief survived. Yeah, it was just, it, but that was kind of the premise, and I thought that was a little fun. Um, the T'Challa as Star Lord thing ruled. That was such a great idea, and how? Oh yeah, that was the one that was most like what if comics that I like, where it changed something fundamental, but that could have that easily it could have gone one way or the other, and then the changes that they made were all really bold storytelling choices like having Thanos um just like oh yes uh T'Challa just talked Thanos down and now he's like a chill (laughs) guy who we hang out with sometimes um that's like a great what if idea and they got to show you like a new side of that character it's not genocide it's economical (laughs) yeah everyone everyone's had to hang out at the bar with a guy like that it was just like yeah that was uh yeah and so that's that those are all of the shows that we have watched now by the time this releases, both Hitmonkey and Hawkeye will both be out, but we haven't seen it and or have not seen it in its entirety, so we don't really want to talk about it. We also haven't watched MODOK yet, which <laughs> came out on Hulu a while ago, but we will be talking about MODOK at some point, probably in its own episode. We just haven't penciled it in yet. Yeah, we're eager to watch MODOK. That's a, we're yeah. so eager we want to do it justice because we both love the character and uh, it looks like that is a fun cartoon. Exactly. No idea what to make of Hitmonkey, though. <laughs> I remember when Hitmonkey premiered in Marvel Comics. I don't even know Hitmonkey. Oh, it's so surreal that this is... Uh, it was one of those things they love to audaciously premiere something and be like, it's the thing that everybody wanted. They did this for a couple of years. It was like with Sentry, where they, they they tried to gaslight everybody into thinking that Sentry was a forgotten Marvel character that was published in like the late 50s. Uh, I, I did not know that. Okay, well, there was a period of Marvel in the early 2000s where they decided it was really fun to just lie to the readers and uh, or to and um, and one of the things was they were like, we're introducing Hitmonkey. He's going to be Deadpool's new arch nemesis. Um, and, and because like people were just like, why hasn't Deadpool fought a monkey who's a hitman yet? 
And then the interviewers would be like, so why did you create this character? And they, they would keep on being like, because everyone wanted Hitmonkey. It was, and this wasn't true. They just kept saying it. <laughs> and it's so surreal that they the secreted him into existence, and now he's getting a Hulu cartoon. Like, I'm sure Patton Oswalt just saw it and went, I want to do that. Maybe he was the impetus behind the comic 20 years ago. That seems not impossible. Yeah, I He was at the Hellfire Gala. <laughs> That's true. Uh, there were two other uh, animated shows that we're not going to talk about that came out this year. Big Hero 6 had its final season. We I like have the not movie. watched any of it. Cute movie. Uh, yeah. Uh, and Spidey and His Amazing Friends comes out on Disney Junior. It is aimed at a quite younger audience than is usual and even younger than like the all ages audience of like Avengers Earth Mightiest Heroes or that kind of Spider-Man 95, those kind of things. Uh, and then the last show, this was a 2020 release, but I really wanted to talk about it in that I just wanted to mention it, Hellstrom, which they had to change from Hellstrom with two L's because they didn't want to piss off any Christian groups for having a show about exorcisms and demons having the name Hell in its title. I'm pretty sure that he's, they spell it with a, he is, um, it is what it, it's pre- spelled Hellstrom. With one L, and then when it's Hellstorm, and they they rearrange the letters a little bit, they they double up the L. I've seen them do both in the comics. Okay, but I know that they originally were titling the the show with two L's, and then they had to change it. <laughs> I'd believe you on that. That sounds likely. Because yeah. that came out in 2020, it was bad. You watched uh, it, right? I watched the whole thing. It was ten episodes. I mean, it was fine for most of the most of the first half, and then episode eight happens, and I don't mind spoiling this at all. Uh, the the main nun lady she's not a nun but she's basically a nun gets possessed by one of the demons who's was possessing hellstrom's mom and then another demon possesses hellstrom and then they bang and then they have an entire episode which is just the birth and it's like some of the grossest shit but not in a like hellraiser flesh flaying meaning gross but like you sit there and it's like this was poorly conceived and uncomfortable in like the wrong ways i don't you remember when they were so precious about like uh the the health of the brand and they were like all the marvel products have to be good and then it just got so big that they're like ah i guess we can't control it anymore and now there's like a couple of like weird blemishes that uh yeah are like um well inhumans being the big one that's a disaster that everyone would rather pretend didn't exist and then like agents of shield kind of trying to tie into inhumans weirdly and then being totally forgotten I love forgotten. agents of shield Yeah, so agents shush. of shield totally rules <laughs> uh, no, no I love agents of shield too but uh it, it kind of got shunted off to the side and it's own yes. zone the whole Netflix world is now this weird zone and the I, the rumors They're calling that it the Marvel Knights stuff Sure. So. Yeah. All the, and uh, th- there's all these rumors that they're bringing that back with similar actors, but maybe it's a reboot and maybe it's not a reboot and who cares? Yeah. Yeah. What's really interesting about the Hellstrom, Hitmonkey, Modoc, they're all created for Hulu along with Runaways, which ended last year or two years ago. Uh, and they were the, the this stuff was originally called like the Adventures into Fear stuff so they were going to be doing a lot of like a ghost rider show and horror stuff for hulu and then they consolidated all the tv stuff when they got disney plus and they canceled everything that was in development except the stuff that was already either finished or almost finished like modok and hit monkey and hellstrom yeah so weird. weird it gets even 
this is one of those things where I'm not that interested in it, but I know a lot about it, and it gets like less interesting the more you dive into it. Where like it's got to do with how Hulu is actually co-owned by a bunch of networks, but when Disney bought Fox, they got a bunch of the Fox shares of Hulu. So now. Disney is a majority owner of Hulu, so they get most of the money of everything that Hulu puts out, but not all of the money. It's just like and you by twenty twenty five, they will have complete ownership of it. I think they worked out some deal. I just I never wanted to on career day. I never told them that I wanted to be a copyright lawyer, and I'm really resent that I became one through this. <laughs> yeah, I blame Disney. Yeah, I blame the Disney monopoly. I blame the uh, crumbling of the uh, American institutions and culture for um, allowing these corporations to run so rampant that the only checks on them is people on Twitter being like, oh, well, that's happening. And then in like a panic. Yep. Yep. Before we wrap up our first half of the show. Yes, this is only the first half. I apologize, everyone. Uh, or well, actually, I don't more 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 of us is always better. Right. Right? I, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> um, why don't we recommend a couple uh, series for the stuff that we have talked about that we've, you know, that we've watched? Uh, totally. Like Modoc, we already did a Modoc's Eleven episode, which, and that was which ex- you loved. Yeah, that was your favorite thing we've that. ever read. I think. Uh, I mean, it's pretty easy because unlike in the past. Marvel Comics has actually been pretty good about putting out a really strong title to coincide with each of these movie releases, which they've really uh, floundered with in the past. Yeah. Yeah, they really have. DC really hasn't. (laughs) Yeah, they really haven't succeeded. Uh, Supergirl is running, and they didn't have a Supergirl series. Right. Right. So when Black Widow came out, um, and if you went to the comic store and you're like, is there a good Black Widow comic? There was for, I would argue, the first time ever that I've like actually unabashedly could recommend and enjoy a Black Widow comic. And that's the Eisner cur- Award winning. Eisner Award winning Kelly Thompson. Who's the, uh, is there a main artist on that or does it go between? Um, it's been between Elena Casagrande and Rafaela de la Torre. Well, just like every issue of that is fun. And Kelly Thompson uh, works really Jordan well. Jordan on colors. Yeah. Clayton Callis on letters. Thank you for the credits. Um, Kelly Thompson, I think, works really well in that mode I'm talking about, where she doesn't have Black Widow fighting uh, a guy in a suit who's got a gun. She has Black Widow (laughs) fighting Arcade and Taskmaster and other Black Widow and just like uh, and cyborgs and witches. Just right. (laughs) Everything I listed before. Yeah. And same with Shang-Chi. There's a currently uh, Jin Luen Yang comic, uh, which is a continuation from a miniseries he did, and it's excellent. And actually, um, I'm not going to talk too much about it because I might talk about it later in this episode. I was wrong. It's Corey Petit on letters. Oh. Ah, I thought it was Cowless, but I think he's significantly ter- you know, toned down the amount of books he was working on. It seems like it. He's not doing as many as he was a couple years ago. But anyway. Good for him. <laughs> um, the Eternals comic, we mentioned that... Um, Karen Gillan has been doing yeah, there's really a interesting run. work there. Yeah, definitely interesting work, and I'm sure we will talk about that more as well. And Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Spider-Man's, well, except that there hasn't been a good... Uh, no, but there has been, there's always going to be some sort of Spider-Man series. Yeah, it's not hard to find. Well, uh, specifically since uh, this movie seems to be doing a version of Spider-Verse, I would strongly recommend, you know, actually, I'm going to recommend spider Geddon which was the uh, lesser-known follow-up in the comics to Spider-Verse, just as strong to read. Um, it was Christos Gage was the uh, frontman in that. And what's funny is a lot of beloved Spider-Man extended cast members now were introduced in the first Spider-Verse before they knew that they were going to be hit characters, such as Spider-Gwen. Mm-hmm. 
and Spider-Geddon puts Gwen right at the center in a way that uh, she wouldn't have been in that first story, and Miles gets, like, a really compelling part that, um, and, and they do, like, cool different stuff with Miles that I thought built up the character in a way that um, other writers have kind of struggled to. So Spider-Geddon is my big recommendation for if you like interdimensional spider shenanigans. There you go. You heard it here first. And as for the shows, I don't really have any good recommendations for WandaVision. I mean, right now, Trial of Magneto was coming out, and that's, um, I think, the biggest Wanda story in years. Right. Um, and there's the beloved um, uh, Vision comic by Tom King. Oh, Yes. Um, but yeah, I was going to mention, I happen to love, and we should probably consider reading this for the show one day, is uh, Scarlet Witch by James Robinson. I have who, thoughts. Uh, have you read that before? I have. Oh, yeah, I have thoughts on too, but I really like that series for the most part. It's got some gorgeous art uh, by, I think, Mike Del Mundo. Mm, yeah, I, th- I thought every issue had a different artist. Oh, well, there's one issue by Mike Del Mundo that is burned into my brain then. Um, but I thought that that, was, that series uh, was ahead of its time, doing stuff that the groundwork for which is being laid now. And I think that I would be interested in revisiting that series. Mm, um, makes sense. Sounds like, sounds like we should talk about it on the show. Yeah. If you're interested in supporting Captain America cast, I got bad news for you, which is that Captain America was uh, has been kind of cordoned off to uh, his own little area. But um, the Tom yeah. Coates run is really interesting, and I was planning on rereading, actually. It's worth a reread. I also haven't reread it, but I read it as it came out, and I, I think that's one of the most interesting Captain America runs in a while. And even though I really like the Rick Remender stuff, that, that thing was off the walls weird yeah. this one was like really a good look at the character and kind of the ideas and i mean it's tanahisi coats he brings in kind of these big essay ideas into it and it doesn't always work as a comic but he definitely it feels a lot less you know essay slapped onto panels than the start of his black panther stuff well and yeah that that stuff i found hard to read um but I feel like you're that doesn't even like uh, what sell, sells me on Tommy Coates is like he's writing Red Hulk and Celine, just like yes. terrible Marvel characters, just like awful characters. And I'm like, really, you had the, the entire toolbox, and this is who you wanted to write about. What's your angle on this? And it's always kind of interesting. Yeah, it's good stuff. I was also gonna say if you read that, I mean, and if you want to see uh, Falcon as Captain America, there was. The start of the Rick Remender, I think it was uh, all new, all different Captain America. I, I would not recommend that. Uh, and then there was the Nick Spencer Captain America with Falcon, and I would also not recommend that. Yeah, and I would also not recommend that. Which sucks, because, you know, Falcon as Captain America was a really good idea. And then there was the uh, Bucky as Captain America stuff from uh, Ed, Ed Brubaker. I actually have a big quibble with Falcon as Captain America. Okay. Captain America, his, like, main thing, I know he has different superpowers at different times, but his main thing is he's got an indestructible shield. And mm-hmm. it's, like, a, it's a defensive weapon that he used to d- defend the weak, and sometimes he, like, uses the best defense as a good offense. Mm-hmm. Falcon's main thing is having wings and flying. But this means if the Hulk is going to punch Captain America, Captain America is going to duck behind his indestructible shield. And if the Hulk is going to punch Falcon, Falcon's going to fly out of the way, because that's his whole thing. If you give Falcon a shield, then he flying away is no longer his thing, especially that his wings in the movies are already acting as a shield. He's, like, deflecting gunfire with it and stuff. So just, like, visually and logistically, the idea of combining the idea of the um, guy who will stand fast and never give an inch and uh, is indestructible with the guy who will zip out of the way and fly nimbly away from uh, from being in danger. Mm-hmm. is just like inherently i think a, a flawed idea from the start 
you, you can't give the flying guy a shield. You got to give him something else if he's if to be Captain America or like figure out like another way to play with that imagery. Well, in the comics, he can talk to birds. So I like that. Give me a movie where he talks to birds. <laughs> As for Loki, there's an ample abundance of random Loki series from over the years. I would recommend reading The Journey into Mystery by Karen Gillan. One of my favorite comics of all time. One of the best Loki comics out there. Uh, honestly, I, th- I think that just read that one. It has nothing to do with Loki, but it's a good read anyway. It's got a lot. I mean, the, the, sh- the, the Loki show referenced a lot of interesting, weird Loki runs. There's also yes. the Vote Loki run, which is pretty fun. That was Al Ewing. Was, no, Loki no. Agent of Asgard was Al Ewing. Oh, uh, yeah. And I was going to mention Loki Agent of uh, Asgard is probably, of all these Loki comics, the most readable and like self-contained one that if you read the, what, three trades of that series, you'll get a beginning, yeah. middle, and end of a story, and it's really good. Yeah, totally. And what if... Well, the, there are no what-if stories currently being published other they, than... They the, bring it back every few years. Yeah, they bring it back every few years. It looks like Chip Zdarsky is starting to spearhead a new initiative for it because he published spider's shadow which was branded as what if and i think they're going to be releasing a few more technically the life story brand for spider-man and fantastic four i guess is a what if um what if time actually progressed like real time Um, but a couple years ago, there was a brief What If miniseries, uh, the highlight of which was Leo Williams's What If Magic Became the Sorcerer Supreme. Oh, yeah, there was that. And there was also another one. There was a really fun one about a Ghost Rider one with art by Casper Wingard, which was killer. Oh. And uh, there was a fun one where, like, Loki and Thor are swapping places, and Loki is, like, the vainglorious Prince of Asgard, and Thor is, like, the uh, aggressor. Mm-hmm. That that's the most recent run of a comic called What If from Marvel, and that was actually like uh, I think there was like six issues in that series, and like four of them were were bangers, and two of them were pretty good. <laughs> I don't remember that, but I guess I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, that's what I would recommend uh, for What If. Cool beans. Okay. Yeah, that so, was a lot of MCU yeah. talk. As I, I knew we would be able to, but um, I think we should take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, we should talk about comics. Hello, we're the hosts of the Multiversity Manga Club podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Zach. And I'm Walter. Each month, we pick a manga to read and discuss among ourselves. Past books include Monster, A Silent Voice, and Pokemon Adventures. We also look back on the past month's installments of Weekly Shonen Jump, discussing the highs and lows from the Viz Anthology. We've even discussed notable manga adaptations like Netflix's Death Note. At the end of each episode, we announce next month's book club pick so you can read along with us. We're always open to suggestions for future books as well. So join us on the first Friday of every month on MultiversityComics.com, Apple Podcasts, or your podcatcher of choice. And welcome back. We are returning from our break after talking about all of that, uh, you know, Marvel TV and movie goodness and moving back to comics with a segment that has long slumbered but is now awoken. Baseline X. Oh, man. Oh man! So we haven't done baseline X for a while. This is this. Uh, so if you're if you forget, if you need a refresher, this is the segment where um, Elias and I rank every uh, X Men 
comic, and I will qualify that in a moment, um, from worst to best, and then we stop as we go to talk about um, each of the titles. We're specifically focusing on anything that has been introduced in the Krakoa era of X-Men, starting with Houses, House of X, Powers of Ten. Um, and at the time recording this, the most recent big storyline is Inferno, with a lot of miniseries and stuff in the middle, 24 series to be exact. Um, yeah. And Elias are just, and I are just going to go from the bottom to the top, and uh, we're going to stop when one of us uh, gets to something we want to talk about at the at the lowest position, mm-hmm. and we're going to kind of like catch up on on Krakoa because this is a big moment. This is we're at the time of recording. We're in the final days of Jonathan Hickman writing X Men books. Yeah, which is weird and strange, and uh, you know we're talking we talk about it as oh this is the end of the Hickman era, but. It kind of isn't, but it is, and I keep expecting in, like, five five years or whatever, Hickman to come back to X-Men and write, like, the next thing that's going to move it to whatever the next status quo is, because that's the whole reason why he's leaving the book. All of the writers are like, no, we want to explore this more, and he didn't want to do his big twist, or his big, whatever the next turn is. So I guess Inferno is setting something up, and then, you know, it's going to lie fallow for a while, and I, I suspect that you know, him or someone else are going to explore a lot of the ideas that he had originally planned on exploring in the main X-Men book. Which, uh, overall, I think this is great. I, I love that this happened. I I feel like in the last couple of months, a lot of the different X-series have, um, or many of them, have lost some energy mm-hmm. and urgency. Um, and I've got a feeling that that's going to be like a slow deflation of the entire line because uh, they've been so meticulously moving from one thing to another. But at the same time, I'm enjoying them all so much. I don't think that's a bad thing. And the books that have really wanted to explore the logistics and the lives and the feelings of the characters on Krakoa um, and take their time with it have been all my favorite books. So deciding to do that for two years before you burn it all down in the grand finale is like a gift to me. I'm not complaining at all. (laughs) <laughs> and I don't think it's burning. I don't think it's all burning down. It sounds like Hickman's because they kept talking about this three act structure. And it seems like that just got tossed out the window. He's like, well, plans change. The whole thing's still been a masterpiece for me. This is one of my yeah. the, my favorite t- periods of comics ever. I'm having so much fun reading it live. I can't remember the last time I was this excited. And for so long, this has been going on for three years and I'm still uh, I, I'm still eagerly reading everything every week. Exactly. And I also suspect that a lot of this deflation we're feeling is because there are two really big stories currently going on. And they're like, they they need to spin their wheels just a little bit longer until we get to that new point. And then I think we're going to start seeing some major changes in in some of the ongoings uh, as a couple others come to a close. Because we don't really have that many books going on anymore uh yeah I, I was looking a lot of stuff has wrapped up oh that's wrapped up that's wrapped up eh, there's still some stuff well, well we're gonna go yeah. through it. let's start at the we'll bottom go through it. do you want to go first or do you want me to start why don't you start okay so at number 24 unsurprisingly is fallen angels also before we get any further we counted all you know we never really counted one shots in this but we kind of thought of them, most of them are extensions of existing series. So if there was ever a one-shot like Cable Reloaded or 
X-Men on the Onslaught Revelation. That counted either as part of Cable or as Way of X. You know, <laughs> sure. That sort of stuff. You love the uh, litigating. Uh, the, I the, love litigating All stuff the little like litigations this. are where you live. Um, yeah, my number 24 is also Fallen Angels, which is um, significant for me because uh, for a long time I had Wolverine ranked at in dead last place. Yeah. I, I don't think Fallen Angels has ever lost its last place position for me. I hated that series so much. I I always liked I, I talked about it before and we don't have to. What I just want to do last thing my last word on Fallen Angels is it's really interesting how far we've moved from it now. Where not only was it disappointing, but doesn't even seem like it matters now. Oh yeah, yeah, it's so far in the in the past. Uh, Crazy. Num- yeah, number twenty three, Wolverine. My number twenty three is X Force. Ooh, my twenty two is X Force. My twenty two is Wolverine. Yeah, I was just kind of disappointed. I've been more disappointed in Wolverine than X-Force, even though, which sinks, because again, I like Benjamin Percy's writing, but of all of these X-Books, these two are consistently the weakest. Yeah, it's tough. Well, Wolverine for me is tough because every so often there's like a good issue of Wolverine that if this came out 20 years ago, I would have loved. Mm-hmm. Like, I kind of like the story where Wolverine and, was it Cyber or Maverick or something? <laughs> Wolverine and is, like, rescuing a Weapon X assassin who's being sold yeah. on auction, and they have to fight their way out. And that would have been a good X-Men issue in 2000, or a good Wolverine issue in 2005. But in the Krakoa era, I'm always pulling out my hair, like, why is this the story you chose to tell about Wolverine right now? Is something that w- would have been really hot in 2005. And sometimes we get a really good X-Force story. In Wolverine. True. Why not just put that in X-Force? Especially because the good X-Force stories are rarely in X-Force. It's just like a bunch of um, character assassination for Quentin Quire and Beast. Just And it's also dreary. Like, Quentin Quire went from being the guy who wore the um, ironic t-shirts and being like a real asshole to a guy wearing pink Omegas on a big black jump bodysuit. It's like uh, every version of the X-Force and Wolverine characters is the most boring version of them. Yeah. Yeah, and it um, sucks. Like, Domino's I I, there, and I never feel... <laughs> we never really get much on her. Yeah, she's been a highlight. The, my favorite X-Force issues were all the Domino ones. Yeah. I'm guessing your number 21 is the same as mine. Mm, I don't know. I've got Giant Size. Oh, no, no then. Mine is X-Men Fantastic Four, the miniseries. That's my number 20. My number 20 is going to be more controversial, I think. Oh, so we'll save that just for a second. Yeah, I just the more I think about it, the more I'm just... I forget about most of Giant Size. Like, the art was always really nice, but the story was such a nothing burger that even the you know, the problems I had with X-Men Fantastic Four, uh, Giant Size just, over time, has disappointed me more, and I haven't wanted to revisit it in any meaningful way. Uh, what I've had to reconcile with, with Giant Size is that the, the, there was a couple issues that I absolutely loved. Probably three mm-hmm. out of the five issues I absolutely loved. Yeah. And then there was two of them that were like, whatever. But yeah, it definitely, um, it's tough to, to rank Giant Size against all these other ones because it's so different in its goals. Yeah. And it pulls off its goals really well. But like uh, that Magneto issue was like, I couldn't tell you anything about it. See, I love that Magneto issue. It was just him buying a boat, uh, an island. I, I had a lot of fun with that, but it had nothing to do with anything else in Giant Size. No, although I but I like issues like that just because like... I'm I'm wondering what Magneto is doing during the day when he's not like uh, fighting in space wars all the time, and it turns out yeah he's buying an island from a fisherman who Namor is friends with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I lo- I love stuff yeah. like that. I want to see more of that for all the mutants, just like off in the world doing their little things. 
All right. Uh, so what's your controversial number 20? So my number 20 is Children of the Atom. Ooh. Wow. I, I'm surprised. I was really intrigued by the premise of Children of the Atom. I have mostly really loved Vida Yala's writing, and uh, Vida Yala's other exploit book does uh, very well on my list. Um, but I found Children of the Atom to be um, just kind of a slog, and it wasn't the the new characters. Um, I, I didn't become attached to any of them. I, I kind of was like waiting for them to do something that sparked for me, and it didn't. Mm-hmm. I thought that on paper I, I understood why that that perspective of having human kids who want to celebrate what the mutants are doing off of Krakoa who like would love to go to Krakoa that's like a good idea on paper but I don't know it just never um their motivations were never that interesting to me and this while the social and the social commentary stuff was good but like it was kind of like what you were saying about Tanahisi Coates books earlier it was like it was a good essay that didn't really function as a superhero comic story for me yeah it it had a lot of trouble cohering we'll we'll talk about it a little more when we get to where it is on my list i think okay that way we can contrast where it sat well my number 19 then is a uh, giant size x-men which again ah. is, is, t- is tough to rank but um, yeah. i really remember mm-hmm. fondly like we're already at 19 like 19 and 20 and i'm like yeah my top 20 is all really strong these are good books yeah i i have empire x-men there just those middle books they killed me they killed me and that makes me sad i got empire x-men at 18 i thought that that series miniseries was a delight but it was just like a bunch of fun x creators getting to jam with an unrelated yeah. event so it doesn't really have a story impact it was just like funny writing and cool and i thought the villains were memorable some like of my favorite obscure characters got to steal a scene or two mm-hmm. yep. yep my number 18 is x corp oh interesting um yeah it just was boring i never connected with what was going on it's uh, you know it it happened it came it went it was five issues it ended <laughs> is, is uh, it, i thought it is would it over? go on it a, it's a mini yeah, it's over i think so i don't think there's an x corp six I thought there was. I guess we'll find out. But um, I thought there was. Yeah, I thought it was canceled. Uh, it ended at. Yeah, it was a stealth mini. A lot of these books have become stealth minis, um, and I'm just double checking. Uh, yeah, and I mean there were some interesting ideas, but it never really went anywhere. It felt like f- five issues of faffing about, and. I mean, I didn't even notice this, but as someone pointed out, I think it was between issue three and four. Issue four retcons the ending of issue three, like, hard. And that's not a good sign of a book. From what to what? Like, I think Trinary breaks through the ceiling of something, runs away. A character was knocked unconscious. No one, like, there was information that wasn't shared. And then the next issue, they redid the scene just with a completely different set of outcomes. Without even a, this is what you thought it was, and this is what it actually was. It was a, no, 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 the, like, events just happened differently. <laughs> well, I will talk, um, you can see how closely I'm reading that. I will talk about x yeah. when we get to it on my list then. Okay. Because my number 17, is that what we're up to? Yep. My number 17 is the Juggernaut series. Ooh, interesting. I have Way of X down here. That is also and interesting, yeah. I really liked Way of X at the start, but it has fallen hard. We'll talk about that, we'll talk about that later. In a second. Uh, Juggernaut, you didn't list yet, so I guess we'll talk about that one. I find that the list, too. Mm-hmm. So in that case, my number 16 is X-Corp, and I want to just... Um, I think I liked X-Corp more than most people seem to. Mm-hmm. 
I think that Teeny Howard is really talented at genre. She, she has a really good understanding of the genre she's working in, and she tries to have as much fun with the, you know, with those toys as she can. Mm-hmm. And so her doing like a corporate boardroom thing is not my favorite genre. And I think most comic fans I know it's like their least favorite thing. But like Teeny Howard would write a hell of a madman fanfic. Just like a her office politicking uh, was pretty fun, and her characters always look smart. Uh, which I liked, and I thought the relationship stuff was really good. Like, um, by the end of it, I'm really sold as Angel and Monet as a duo, romantically or otherwise. Mm-hmm. I think that, they, um, and they didn't have any sort of relationship before this book to speak of, or before these last couple of years of comics. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I like Trinary as a character, and I want to see more of her, and I liked how Teeny wrote her, but I also, um, like, Celine, who I mentioned is a dumb character, Teeny wrote a hell of a Celine. Uh, Mastermind is one of, like, the grossest ex-characters who I hate so much, and Teeny even made me kind of care about him and be interested in following him in this, like, villain book. So I thought she was doing, like, really good work with what was probably an idea they should have left in the box. Yeah, it, yeah, there there wasn't really a lot to do. Jamie, the Jamie Madrox stuff was fun i didn't even mention yeah jamie madrix i yeah. i not my favorite uh take on madrix but i liked it okay yeah but just like uh i feel like what you should be doing to teeny howard is being like all right you haven't done a cowboy comic yet you haven't done a pirate comic it just like throws genres at her and she will crush it yeah i'm just the plot was just so all over the place it's too much it was too much all well, in one i'm book. shocked that that was the last issue that didn't feel c- conclusive at all the last right? issue of uh children of the atom felt conclusive to me I think they were – well, Children of the Atom was originally supposed to be an ongoing, and then I think they said it was going to end at issue seven, and then it ended at issue six, yeah, which, was a hell, that... with a, which was a Hellfire Gala issue that debuted a month after the Hellfire Gala ended. Right, but it also um, like thematically tied up all, everything with a bow, and X-Corp, I'm just like, oh, what are we saying about corporations? I guess that sometimes they're bad, but you're in one. Yeah. Just yeah. like a no themes to speak of, just like fun boardroom machinations. I guess if you really like the show Succession, X Corp was like a good <laughs> uh, X Men Succession fanfic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at number sixteen. Yeah. What's your sixteen? I've got Cable. I would like to talk about Cable a lot. Actually, it's the, the book I want to focus on the most on my list, and it's much higher up. Okay. Uh, what's your number fifteen? My number fifteen is Way of X. Okay. So we'll talk about that here. Uh, and my number 15 was Children of the Atom. So why don't Perfect. we talk about both of those as we go? So Way of X, I really liked the opening of Way of X. I thought it was amazing. I was glad we were getting a Nightcrawler-focused series about his religion. I thought it was an ongoing. It's another stealth mini that then had a one-issue double-sized cap-off epilogue. Yeah, why they didn't release it as just Way of X 6, I don't fucking know. It had no business being it's on its own. I thought it was the start of a mini. I, I'm constantly wondering this, and I would love to um, like get a Marvel editor and just be like, what the fuck are, goes on in those meetings where you're just like, yeah, the last issue of this series has a different title, and uh, and it's gonna, it's a, but it's really a teaser for another series with a different title. Just like, what are they yeah. thinking? And it's a one-shot, but we're not announcing it as a one-shot. We're announcing it just kind of like stealthily implying that it's a mini, but it's not. I understand why they do that, although I think it's dumb and misguided. But I don't even understand why you would change the name of a series in the middle and then be like confused why people can't find it. Yeah. Anyway, um, Way of X, it, it lost its way midway through, um, and it was it's just—it became really smug in a way it shouldn't have— is and that your 
is that the word that you arrived at smug or did I say smug to you? You said like... smug, but then as smug and Legion go hand in hand and Sysperia had previously written a Legion series that I avoided like the plague. Really? It's but my favorite thing he's ever written. I just avoided it because I don't like Legion. I think he's a frustrating character. I read the Peter Milligan Legion series having said that. Yeah, that's um, a good one. Yeah, it it felt like he just wanted to write another Legion series, didn't know how, and dragged him into Nightcrawler's story for no reason. Yeah, I, I didn't mind the uh, Legion's presence there, and I appreciate that Spurrier is interested in what I think is the most interesting part of Krakoa. Mm-hmm. Or rather, yeah, he's, me just, too. he's interested in like the sci-fi of it and being like... Um, uh, being a sociologist, just like how would these rules change people's lives and outlooks and stuff? So I thought he was asking all the right questions, but yeah, there was I I find found it to be smug where he seemed to think and this is so hard to quantify, right? But like, um, can I the give babies. you babies? Yeah, so can I give you? I'll give you the example of the babies, which we talked about uh, mm-hmm. off the air. Um, in issue three, I think there's this whole plot point where. It turns out that mute, pregnant mutants are arriving to Krakoa and abandoning their babies just, like, in the bushes. And then Stacy X, who formerly was a mutant prostitute in a very, like, ill-advised and poorly regarded uh, old X-Men story, has formed a brothel slash orphanage where people can, like, go to, like, uh, safely play out their sex fetishes in this brothel, while also the brothel staff is, like, raising the abandoned children of Krakoa. Yeah. And, yeah, and you could just tell that he thought this was all a great idea, and also from the way that they were talking about it, you could tell that this was Spurrier being like, well, I'm pro-choice, I think that abortions are, like, fine and good and just, but... Uh, one of the laws of Krakoa is to make more mutants. So wouldn't people, would it be frowned upon to like terminate pregnancies on Krakoa if uh, the society is is like oriented? So he was like trying to to square those two positions. How could pro-choice mutants come to Krakoa and then like um, encourage fertility? But like he didn't have it. Like his or I, And I liked knowing that that orphanage was there. That part of it was good. But everything about it, he was just like, it was all these characters being like, nobody thought about this. And I was just like, you thought about it, Sizeburger, and you wrote it into the book. You don't need to like pat yourself on the back for asking the question. Yeah, and one of the other things with that is also like I I have harped a little bit on the make more mutants being the least talked about law out of all like out of those three. Sure, there aren't really any books approaching that. Like there are very few discussions of romance and relationships and sex and you know babies in general. None of this is approached in any other book, in any meaningful way, really. There was a wonderful little scene between Rogue and Gambit where they talked this out in Excalibur. That I yeah. really liked. Um, that was, the, before uh, this entire book, that was the best representation of this theme. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, approaching that and approaching it from Nightcrawler trying to square, you know, his Catholicism with this new world and bringing in, like, this, the discussions from Crucible, from the Crucible issue here... I thought that's what Way of X was going to be, but no, we just get Onslaught and a devil figure. Yeah, <sighs> I think... That's so dull. I think I would have... Yeah, I think Way of X would have been extraordinary if it was written by Hickman, because uh, this is what Hickman... This is all his greatest strengths. Mm-hmm. And with Spurrier, I was reading uh, the final issue, Onslaught Revelation, and I kept on 
being like, is it my fault that I don't understand a fucking word of this, or is it because he doesn't, <laughs> he can't write? And I was just like reading the sentences, and it's just like all this like non nonsense poetry. Yeah, it's yeah, and he's. I am very back and forth on Spurrier's work because I think his John Constantine Hellblazer series as one of the best comics of the decade. I haven't finished it yet, but I, re- I started it on your recommendation, stuff. and that's definitely the best thing I've ever read by him, with, like, yeah. uh, with a bullet. And I really didn't like the Spire. I didn't even continue past issue one. And Like, I'm very back and forth. Some books by, by him I really like, some books I don't. Uh, and this was emblematic of most of, but not all of his problems. He's gotten a lot better with, like, the way he writes dialogue in terms of, like, naturalistic pauses and asks the letterer to do a lot. He really asked the letterers to do a lot with yeah. to, to convey tone. And I like that sometimes, and sometimes it's one of the most infuriating things in the world. No, that's a good note. That's a, that's a good observation. Yeah. That's definitely true. Here, it's not as, as prominent, but the sentences themselves don't resolve, and some the ideas under them are, like, sometimes a little dubious, especially with, like, Fabian Cortez and Lost. I'm like, I get what you're trying to do, but yeah, Lost has I... been a real non-entity in this entire series, which stinks because it's supposed to be about them. Yeah. And, and Nightcrawler. And she... Well, and she's, like, a new character, uh, never appearing before this, so it's weird how under-explained she is, and I, you know, I'm bored whenever she was on the page. I would go looking for characters I liked. Um... And the work he did with Cortez is, like, weirdly poignant, and I kind of appreciated it. But at the same time, just all of the dialogue, I, um, well, first I just, like, glazed over it. And then I was like, that's not a good way to read. So then I closely read it, and then I was like, no, this is objectively nonsense. And just, like, people, <laughs> I, I wish um, I had an example in front of me. People would just, like, uh, not respond to each other. Like, um, someone would be like, oh, is that about your father? And then the other person would say, the keepers of the secrets. And then you're just like, but that's not what he asked you. Is your, are you implying that your father is a secret keeper? And then I was just like, why am I even... It wasn't, like, worth that level of uh, of scrutiny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suspect that they canceled Way of X, and they said, you're done. But they had, like, a couple issues left, and so they squished it into one giant... supersized issue to try and juice stale sales. Well, then I really liked the... um the tease at the end where it's a setup for Nightcrawler leading a whole new team called the Chevaliers. Hmm. Yeah. I I saw that and I, it didn't, you know, nothing really clicked. Oh, that, well, what excites me about that is I, when, if you have a big line of superhero books with uh, shared characters between the books, I need a really compelling reason for each book to exist or else I start to lose track of the scope of the story. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, if you have three Peter Parker Spider-Man books, and they're all about Peter Parker doing Spider-Man stuff, and just, like, in one of them he's fighting uh, Kingpin, and one of them he's teaming up with Black Cat, and then one of them he's fighting uh, uh, Sandman, mm-hmm. I'm just like, oh, this is just Spider-Man fighting different villains. But if one of them is focused on the soap opera, and one of them's about him fighting supervillains, and one of them's about him teaming up with superheroes, and you do that consistently, then I'm like, okay, I see, I understand as a reader what I'm supposed to take from this. And what I like about Chevaliers is that looks to me to be a book about Nightcrawler leading a team of superheroes battling, like, for the spirit of uh, mutants and, mm. like, uh, going into, like, the astral plane and, like, being weird super therapists on call and battling, uh, oppr- you know, oppressors around the world. And st- I just, like, I-, I saw the mission statement for the book clearly, and that-, that sounds like a great book. I love Nightcrawler leading a team like that. He deserves it. He deserve. He does deserve it. Are we up to uh, number number fourteen for you? 
Well, we still have to discuss uh, Children of the Atom. Oh, yeah. Tell me about your, uh, your feelings on Children of the Atom. I was just kind of bored by it. Now, I mean, I, I have some of the similar issues with Way of X, or more with X-Corp than Way of X, uh, in that it, it was just a lot and the ideas never really came together. But I think it was better handled than X-Corp. I was more interested in it. Um, I, I guess I was hoping we were going to get something more along the lines of the New Warriors, we didn't, and that's okay, because like I guess the first issue really got me interested. What would, like, that, oh, what would that mean to you, more like the New Warriors? Like a real a young team of X Men, like the a young group dealing with you know stuff outside of Krakoa, because right now the uh, the New Mutants is dealing with kind of this interpersonal school related stuff, but we don't really have a group of teens rebelling against the main the main group by doing their own thing out in out in the mainland uh, outside of Krakoa and I thought that would have been kind of interesting to see this like new younger group uh doing doing stuff don't know what stuff it would have been uh, but I'm I'm like I'm not mad that we didn't get that I'm fine with that I was fine with the idea we got but I just didn't think it was handled all that well in terms of like pacing it was just a lot of dialogue and I it was more talky than it needed to be. It was talky without really saying a lot. Uh, like, I just reached the end of every issue feeling kind of bored. Yeah, I felt uh, kind yeah. of the same way. But um, I really like um, Vida Yala writes extremely naturalistic dialogue in this way that that really feels like, like uh, Bendis used to get uh, complimented for this. And now Bendis' dialogue doesn't read as naturalistic at all. It reads as very stilted, but Ayala's dialogue feels so natural to me in that when people have misunderstandings, they have fights that feel like real fights. It's it's not like uh, superhero misunderstandings where everything is heightened. It's always um, people having real disagreements and like really choosing their words carefully and intelligently representing uh, contradicting positions. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think uh, that Vita's gotten like the Marvel series that's going to let them tell the best version of that story yet but i i could feel them creeping closer to it with every series and i think when uh when they're let to like uh let loose they're gonna do something wild oh yeah yeah i could see that um, yeah I, I just don't have that much more to say about children of the atom other than sadly disappointed by it i did not want to be disappointed by it unlike all these but other I ones was. where you were desperate to be disappointed by well wolverine i knew i was going to be disappointed by uh no even that one took me by surprise but anyway <laughs> um that brings us to number 14 yes mm -hmm. uh so my number 14 is right now is um x-men volume six the current new jerry duggan x-men series interesting i like the idea of the book and I love the vibe of it. And there's all these quiet moments that I really enjoy. And I like that it is um, – it has the energy that's lacking from a lot of the other longer-running books. Like he's introducing like six new villains, and I think they're all fun ideas. Mm -hmm. But so far I haven't had like a big uh, moment that makes me like really care about a character. Or like I feel like uh, – I guess the thing that it's lacking for me is like um, there was this cool moment with uh, – in the first issue with Cinch – and Jean Grey, and they can kind of like uh, share each other's mind reading, and they, and because uh, Cinch can copy mutant powers, and Jean is a mind reader, so they were reading each other's mind. Mm -hmm. 
And I saw the potential for a relationship between those two characters. And now we're like three, four issues in, and I still see a lot of potential for a lot of relationships, but I don't really see any relationships that didn't exist before the book came out. Yeah, that makes sense. When that potential is realized, I think I will put I, I will knock it a lot higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I guess I'll say a little more when we get to it, because my number 14 is Juggernaut, uh, which has risen a lot. Yeah, why uh, I think I just... I think because it was just... It was very competent. It was very, you know, well put together. Uh, it did what it set out to do. It didn't do a lot of things that I was like, eh. I mean, it was it was fine. I was not, like, enthused by it. But the more I think about it, I'm like, I could return to that and have a lot of fun uh, in a way that, like, I wouldn't want to return to Way of X. Yeah. That, uh, that, and that, even that, though that Cable is... is sitting kind of low for me. That's just because I think I was never, like, super just enthusiastic about Cable, not because it was bad. That was just pure enthusiasm. Yeah, I just want to add, Fabio Nicieza, I feel like a lot of people have slept on him in the past. That guy does solidly good work all the time. That guy is, like, a really good comic writer. And even when he's doing things that aren't, like, classically resembled as masterpieces, his middling work is better than a lot of people's best work. Yeah, I still think whatever he did to help with Nightwing, I don't know how involved he was with that, but... Yeah, well, yeah, Probably I'm less his no- weakest. I'm less knowledgeable about the inner workings of DC editorial. Yeah. Anyway, thirteen. Uh, my number thirteen is the Hellfire Gala. Hmm. Uh, you you're gonna be mad at me. Is it you're Marauders? You're gonna be mad at me. It is. I'm pretty mad, but I we'll talk about Marauders. I, I mean, I'll talk about when I get to where it is on my list. Yeah. Number twelve. Um, I just want to say about the Hellfire Gala that. Um, oh, no, no, no. What, what's number twelve? Oh, my number twelve is Excalibur. Okay, because that's where I have Hellfire Gala. I see. Okay. So yeah. my yeah, I have Excalibur there, which I'll we'll talk about in a second. But Hellfire Gala. Um, I thought that the idea of the story was really good, and I think it'll actually – it was really dense because it was so plotted to like the minute mm-hmm. of what's yeah. happening at every minute at this party and where everyone was. So I think reading it like 50 times will help you track everybody, and then when the murder mystery stuff starts, that'll be really gratifying. Uh, but right now, I feel like um, Hellfire Gala was one of the weaker, big Krakoa stories, and the parts I liked the most of it were parts that weren't in the comic. It was like the fandom stuff when people started recreating all the fun costumes. Like, <laughs> like that was. I have a friend who's a cosplayer who sewed like six plus outfits from uh, the Hellfire Gala. Yeah, Just I think it was a really closets. fun experiment, and that's. I feel like the Hellfire Gala was a really good way to use kind of interconnecting books. Like it's not it is telling this one story of the night, but it's like a party. You know, you you can get the big overview of the party. And then as you're going with each one, you get these groups, you know, you've got the people in the corner over there who were there for two hours. You've got Joe who wandered from one edge of the dance floor to the other over the course of four hours. And what happened on that move? When did they intersect with these other ones? I enjoyed all of that. Um, But yeah, it it sits in the middle. It sits at above marauders for me just because uh when i was filling in the list i hadn't been enthused with marauders recently but i feel like those two might switch in future months yeah um and i i I don't want to discourage writers from um doing stories like the hellfire gala in the future i loved the idea and i love 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 the thing that was the most important to me was it was so great that they did an event comic that wasn't about a massacre or an invasion or a betrayal right right yeah it was just about um it it was about a, a big party and there's lots of great stories that take place at big parties and there's lots of other 
um, I guess uh, j- just the recognition that the stakes don't have to be destroying the universe if if it's a good time and a, a party throw Emma Fro- will Emma Frost throw the the best party and nobody will get murdered there is like totally great. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we got that really cool planet sized X ex- Men issue. So yeah, and I love the planet sized X Men issue. Things. Uh, yeah, that for me that was that was the highlight. Yeah. So you had Excalibur at number twelve. Yeah. Um. I feel I feel bad for for Teeny Howard because I, I really like her and her work. Um, but Excalibur is consistently the title um, of the upper half of the list that every month I'm like, oh, Excalibur's here. Uh, I'm sure that'll be something. But like, I, I'm not really. Um, the Braddock family drama doesn't really grip me. Um, the Brexit stuff is kind of fun. But, um, but it's felt a little meandery. Yeah, and the whole book's pretty, been uh, pretty meandery since X of Swords, which makes sense. But I um. I liked that's the book that's suffering the most from losing energy to me because mm-hmm. um like do you remember there was that whack arc where they uh fought Cull- they went to the house of and then fought against Cullen Bloodstone Yeah and when you know early on when Jubilee and Shogo went and Shogo turned into a dragon Sure great just, stuff Yeah I I I liked it better when um every issue you didn't know what to expect and now what I expect is um a bunch of mutants running through a like vaguely defined but well drawn fantasy world, and then like um, talk to each other about like uh, their their personal drama. Mm-hmm. It just and none of it's very. Uh, ur- there's no urgency in it. Just I pick it up and um, I'm not surprised anymore. It's just like the same kind of similar bit happening in different configurations. Yeah, yeah, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Um, what do you have at number eleven? Okay, so at number 11, I have the uh, X of Swords, the Ten of Swords event. Okay, I've got Excalibur at number 11. Okay, so I, I didn't do it so dirty. No. No, that, that Excal- I've been feeling the same way about Excalibur. It's kind of been, you know, meandery, loosey, whatever. What do you have at number 10? At number 10, I have the Inferno event. Interesting. Okay, so this is where I have Ten of Swords. Um, okay. At number 10. It fell a lot. And I don't know if it really should have fallen as much as it did. Ooh, sorry. Voice timber. Uh, okay. As much as it did. Uh, but that's, I, I don't, it's just one of those things where I remember a lot of the, the wildness of it, uh, but it was a little long and some of the lows were not as, not as much. And some of the other books have just pulled ahead of it uh, over time. Yeah. Fairly I've got simple. a feeling. I've actually got a feeling that um, when we look back, X of Swords is going to be remembered as one of the better parts of the whole thing. Oh, probably, yeah. I remember part of the problem with X of Swords was there was a lot of marketing and anticipation, and then stuff went in strange directions, and people were questioning whether they liked it. But I think if you just like read it as a story, it, it sets up the rules and then breaks them in such a fun way. And, totally. Um, the tournament going so magically awry is just like, so funny. And reading it again, I think it's going to work better as a self-contained thing. Than like, mm-hmm. a and it was impacted by COVID like heavily. Maybe yeah. not like in terms of what happens in it, but it getting pushed and published and all that. So, oh well. So what at number ten? I have Inferno. What did you say at number ten? You have X of Swords. Um, yeah, let's we, let's save the Inferno talk for a little bit. Yeah, let's save it. Um, at number nine, what do you have? Uh, I have. This is where I have X Men Volume Six, Jerry Duggan's run. Uh, I'm surprised I like it as much as I do. Yeah, what do you, what's what's working for you? This is why I'm I'm questioning its placement <laughs> because I cannot tell you what exactly is working f- for me about it. Uh, because I re- like I remember snapshots of of different panels and you know 
I think I'm most interested in what's going on in the book. Like, which, you know, God, that's the vaguest fucking statement I've ever said. What's most interesting about this is what's going on. But I mean, like with Ben Urich getting these secret dossiers leaked by Orcus about, you know, the resurrection protocols and... Uh, the you know them assembling this tree in the middle of New York, like those are all of the interesting like superhero intersecting with the Krakoa stuff in ways that are far more you know engaging to me than whoever they're beating up that day. Uh, and yeah, I mean R.B. Silva on art crushing it. So R.B. Silva is um on this book is not my very favorite style, but it's his and it's like, and he's doing it really well. And I recognize that. Um, and that's part of why I feel like, um, there are dramatic moments that pop out of my brain, but like, I never really have a good sense of like place or where they are in relation to each other in the space, you know? Yeah. Um, or like the, the, the sizes of different people and things are kind of hard to tell apart. I don't know which like a thing it's, everything seems kind of dreamlike in that way with RB Silva. And it's kind of not working for me for this book, but it's pretty. And I, you know, yep. No, I, I understand. I totally understand why it might not connect and why, you know, it, it, it is where it is. I I miss the one and doneness, or like even the two and done one done bun fun sun mun. <laughs> yes, you know words. all of that with with Hickman. I I really liked that approach to the main book. And having an anthology like a like that is such a great idea that more superhero comics should be doing. Yeah. Of um, especially if you're orienting your whole line kind of around this. Yeah, give me good um, stuff. I, Detective Comics used to do this, um, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't yeah. know why why this isn't the norm. I'm enjoying what they're doing in Detective Comics now, but that's for a different podcast that we're not a part of. Yes. Yeah. So what did you have, number nine? So number nine, I have X-Factor. Um, ah. We're in the top ten now, and yeah. like I said, everything in the top 20 is books I would recommend to people. Top ten yeah. is all great. So we'll talk about X-Factor in a minute. Great. And at number eight, I have New Mutants. At number eight, I have and would like to talk a little bit about Cable. Ah, there we go. Wow, that's a big difference for us. Yeah. I you really loved, like Cable. I loved Cable. I um hated the idea of Cable from the get-go. I was like, we don't need to give this, <laughs> this kid Cable his own series. I am not interested in it. Issue one had, like, um, uh, Cable exploring, like, uh, the weird polyamorous dating scene of teens on Krakoa, which was kind of interesting, and some pro wrestling. So I mm-hmm. was in. I found the entire series really fun, and by the end of it, I understood every part of it. I knew why every story had to be told, and I knew where it was all going. And the final showdown with Cable and Cable versus Evil Cable, Kid Cable and Old Cable versus Evil Cable, <laughs> was like yeah. a great great final showdown for me, and um, a really poignant look at the character. And they ultimately did... St- convinced me of something that I didn't think I needed to be convinced of or I, that I cared about one way or the other, which is like um, what the series was about was how Cable's time on Krakoa as a kid later inspires him to be the mentor that he is in his first appearance in the early 90s comics. And the time travel of that ended up being really um, pleasing to me. Like I understood where Cable's hope and optimism and like um, 
his compassion. Because that's the thing about Cable, is he's like a tough guy with a gun who seems like he's going to be really aloof. But even from his first appearance, he's like really emotionally mature and compassionate and caring to the people around him. So I like that this was kind of like a story about him learning that those traits as a kid. Mm. Yeah, that is, that's a good way of approaching, I think, the the series. The time travel uh, just, nature. Yeah, the time travel nature of it. I I guess I just wasn't as interested in it as could have been. It just slowly slipped down the rankings. Sure. I, and I didn't think I'd be that interested in it. I'm like kind of surprised. Yeah. Maybe if I revisit it when I read through my Dawn of X, Reign of X trades. <laughs> and it, it, it was funny and it had the great uh, artwork by Phil Noto all the way through. I thought that mm-hmm. having a, a consistent artist made the world of difference in that book. It didn't overstay its welcome. It got canceled. When it ended, I was like, oh, it's ending, but the ending was strong, and then we got like a really fun epilogue as like one final hurrah. It was just like a perfect length for that book, and I was really totally. pleased with it. Yeah. I, I, as like an art object, uh, the Cable series is good. I'm going to remember that really fondly as like a big success, and it wasn't something I uh, I needed to be as this successful. Mm-hmm. I'm repeating myself now. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Number seven, I have Hellions. At number seven, I have X-Men Volume 5 by Jonathan Hickman, the one I was just oh, speak, talking up. Yeah. Oh, always always hurts me seeing it this far down. Um, um, I, I mean, I guess just as an anthology, some of yeah. the issues I really love and are, like, legendary. And there's a lot of issues that I'm like, oh, that was pretty cool. Um, so it doesn't stick in my mind as consistently or mean as much to me as some of my, my favorite favorites. Yeah. As my top right. five. Uh, so at number six, I've got Sword. At number six, I've got New Mutants. Okay, so let's talk about New Mutants. New Mutants is the hardest to rank, obviously, because it's the only one that has like completely shifted direction without like changing its numbering or anything. It's basically like mm-hmm. three plus different books in one series. Yeah. So yeah. it's a little hard to, to parse. Um, I thought the first Hickman arc was like a, a blast, but like ultimately not a, not that important. Although I, I really it... love. No, no, no. It's been pretty important, but yeah, it, it, it set some stuff up. Yeah, in and of itself, it wasn't super important, but I had the most fun with that. And every time a Hickman New Mutants issue came out, I had to read it right away. Uh, the Brisson stuff was fine. It was okay. What? Which which one? Ed Brisson. Oh right, Ed Brisson did that middle volume. I don't even remember. I was like, uh, who did that? Uh, yeah, and the, yeah, the, the Ed I don't remember even. Boom! It was boom, boom, fighting human supremacists in Nebraska. Yeah, there was a couple things that was kind of interesting. It was a little, it was kind of dark. There was also like a bunch of stuff about like doxing and like scary internet culture. Oh yeah, and it, none of that was like good or insightful, but it was like uh like messy and and thought provoking, and mm-hmm. um and there was a bunch of stuff in South in um Nova Roma in South America that was mostly pretty bad. Yeah. And then Vita Ayala took over the book. And so this is where I want to say that Vita Ayala's style has lent itself so well to New Mutants. The conversations between the young mutants, like, figuring stuff out, like, reads as so real. And these people feel so three-dimensional to me. Um, and that's the book that captures the the Hickman spirit of anthology, where any individual issue might focus on a different individual or cast of characters. And the Ayala stuff I love so much. And we haven't spoken about the real superstar in the series, who's Rod Reese, whose artwork has been like my favorite artwork in the entire Krakoa era. 100%. Um, and, and I love Reese... David Baldion stuff. Yeah, and I love David Baldion stuff too. But the Reese-Ayala pairing has been so tremendous that it would be in my top three probably if 
if it was that was the whole series. And the series is asking some really interesting questions about, you know, resurrection and, you know, just aimlessness among teens in this area. And, you know, what happens when you have to change your home, when uh, when you're finding new friends, when your friends are shit influences. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and there's some ongoing stuff right now with um, uh, with Gabby Kinney, which is uh, all a lot of fun and really uh... still disappointed her name isn't Honey Badger anymore. I I'm got really a feeling disappointed. That I'm just trying not to uh, be too disappointed because I got a feeling that in 10 years we're going to win this battle. <laughs> and everyone's going to be like, it's so stupid, though. We called her Scout for 10 minutes. Why do we do that? <laughs> Mark my words. We'll see. Um, my number five is Sword. Oh, okay. Well, let's talk about that because that was my number six. Yeah, that's why, that's why I jumped in. Um, yeah. I mean, what's to say about Sword? It's great. It's Al Ewing doing weird stuff with strange characters and... I guess some of my favorite books, the Krakoa books, have been taking a character that I'm like, I don't need a book about them. And now I'm like, if there's if Wizkid is ever not in an ongoing series, I will riot. <laughs> yeah, so Sword had been part of the Last Annihilation crossover recently, which I was going to say it kind of detached it from what it needed to be. But it really didn't. It was perfectly in line with what Sword does best, which is just being the space mutant book. And the way Ewing integrates, you know, the data pages and explaining characters, like character powers, like how Manifold's power works. Uh-huh. That was so cool. Like, that's the perfect way to do that in order to, you know, get me invested in these characters and to understand it. Plus, now we got the follow-up to Empire, so we don't have that hanging over our heads forever. Right. And... I'm really interested in your opinion on that book because I love Manifold and I love Frenzy. There's like a bunch of obscure characters, but I never uh, Wizkid. I never really had an opinion on Fabian Cortez. I never had any affection for. Yeah, fuck and, that um, guy. But like, he's such an essential component to that book, right? Like him being a mm-hmm. dirtbag uh, is part of the glue that makes that book. And Sword is where Storm has ended up recently, and the Storm stuff's been tremendous. She's yeah. been the mutant who's been the least well-served by Krakoa for the most part, and now she's like got a really cool new role that there has been very few issues exploring, and that good stuff has been happening in Sword. Yeah. I'm just glad that there's a space book. Same. Uh, that's... Uh, if we leave it at that, I'm just glad we have, out of all of these, the only other book that was once a space book was New Mutants. Uh, right. And that was for one arc. But now we have our mutants in space. And uh, X-Men by Hickman uh, did a lot of space stuff that was cool. That's true. I guess it was like moon stuff. Yeah. But like brood stuff and uh, and uh, the Corsair stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But it wasn't a space book. We are closing in on our uh, on our top books now. So you want to? What's your yeah. number four? Uh, no, no, my number five. Oh, sorry, I didn't. Let me just skip you. Number five. Yeah. Yes. Well, my number five is X Factor, which oh, for wow. a while was my number two. I remember that you love that book. Yeah, it was my number two for a good while, um, but it fell one because I think the end of the Hickman stuff was just so strong, like it just it just got me. Yeah. Um, which which you know. Right which a few months ago booted it down for me. But then the ending of X-Factor 1, the untimely cancellation, kills me, which made that last issue feel really weird. I still like it. I don't think it deserves all the hate it gets. Uh, Oh, that last issue? 
Yeah, that last issue. I saw a lot of people uh, criticizing that last issue in bad faith. It wasn't a good issue, but it read as like amateurish to me and not like ill-intentioned or even dangerous. It was just like um, what happens when you're a 23-year-old whose first ongoing series is unceremoniously canceled 10 issues before you were planning on it. I guess you write a really messy issue wrapping everything up. That's like a... Uh, I, I can't even be mad at Leah Williams, who I thought um, did a better job in that situation than a lot of more senior people would have done. Yeah, yeah. I th- I do think, like, I agree that it was really weird. Like, it was hard to follow at times, that last issue. Uh, and why we ended on that mystery is also one of those things where I'm like, okay, this is a really weird place to leave this series. <laughs> but mostly I'm just sad we didn't get more cases we didn't get more of them being the detectives of all of that uh, which doesn't affect the ranking like what that whether i'm sad that we didn't get more of it because i don't control marvel editorial uh in that way but that last issue kind of just made me it was just a bummer just yeah also she has a new series so yeah we'll talk about that in a moment i think <laughs> we'll talk about that in a moment what do you have at number four so at number four i have hellions oh yeah, I mean, it's not that far apart. Hellions has been one of the most surprising books of successes out there. Because I remember when we were first talking about that, we're like, oh, this is the Fallen Angels book that is following up on that. I wonder if it will be any good. And then it came and we were like, oh, it's very good. Yeah. It's our Hellions, scumbag team. Hellions I've consistently had ranked pretty high and um, it's wrapping up pretty soon, but it's just been a blast all the way through and it's felt really essential. There's like mm-hmm. a lot of um, like since uh, Ten of Swords, Excalibur hasn't felt essential. It's like where I go if, when I want to see how Gambit feels about stuff, I guess. <laughs> Um, yeah, but like Hellions has kept a bunch of the uh, cra- the Krakoa Arako uh, tensions going. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mister Sinister's secret machinations, which plays uh, into like the larger Hickman plans, and it's also the uh, stuff about Madeline Pryor resurrecting clones. That that was like really felt like an essential story. Um, for being a funny, dark, mean little book that's like a, a fun Shane Black action movie month to month, Hellions has had surprising like story weight and um, sci-fi exploration metaphor stuff. Yeah, it's been all around great. It, it just sit, it sits further, further down. It's at number seven uh, for me only because I've liked these other books more, not because Hellions is worse. Uh, and always the recency bias on these lists change things, but of course, Hellions was is one of the most consistent books of the long running books. Um, the ones yeah. that haven't ended yet, it's been easily some of the most compelling kind of character drama, and it, it's never been like sad. But there has been there have been moments of like big tragedy, like the end of Ten of Swords. That sure. was so tragic. You're just like, oh my god, no! Yeah, I think if I was to average every issue of every book, Hellions would uh, have one of the highest averages, even higher than my number three book. Yeah. I. <laughs> we have multiple Sinisters running around, and people know about it. Great. Yeah. Well, I mean, multiple Sinisters is old hat. He had no, multiple no, no, no. Sinisters but people be... knowing about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you mean. Um, yeah. I think my number three is going to um, spark some concern okay. though well but first my number four inferno wow you really like inferno so far huh? i really do like inferno i mean i really like all the hickman books me if, too if you know my list that's currently existing all three of them are in the top four 
Like, I really like the Hickman stuff. And Inferno, it hasn't quite started to blow me out of the water. Like, you know. But it's approaching all these ideas that I've wanted to see for a while. And watching Charles and and uh, Eric just get their shit tossed great stuff just get taken down by mystique who's been done dirty by them in the in the x-men you know in the main title good stuff and watching moira kind of us really get like a better understanding of who moira is now because in house of x powers of 10 we kind of understood like i saw moira more as a bit of a tragic figure in the current stuff with regards to destiny like She's afraid of destiny, but also, like, rightly so. But now in Inferno, I'm like, oh, no. No, she's just, she's she's much more petty. Yeah, or um, emotional. She seemed so calculating before, but now it's, it's clear that she's just, like, terrified and traumatized. And she's coming from a place of fear instead of a place of, like, master planning. Mm. Which I, um, I like. I, I've been saying to people who ask me how I feel about Inferno that Inferno is Hickman's chance to prove whether or not his X-Men run was like a little bit sexist or a feminist masterpiece. Yeah. And so I'm kind of holding my breath on that because it hasn't been proven one way or the other yet. Mm-hmm. But but all those things you're talking about, about how like um, Charles and Eric have been treating Mystique like shit really uh, cruelly and how she's finally getting her comeuppance because of how she's been uh, taken uh, not only taken for granted and disrespected. Um, but it's also interesting that um, in quiet moments, Hickman shows us that Charles and Eric also treat Moira the exact same way they treat Mystique. Yep. And I th- can't think of any reason for it other than condescending sexism and paternalism on their parts. Mm-hmm. Especially given that Moira's power is like knowing more than them, and they're like, "Yeah, but like, can she really make decisions?" Right. That's all they're like uh, building up. I just, I whatever the final word on that needs to be so precise for th- that to leave me stoked. That's, so I'm, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm still waiting because there's still more yeah. Inferno to come out. But obviously, yeah, there are going to be so four issues. This was only talking about one. Yeah, super stoked. So what's your number three? I'm ready. I'm ready for uh, it to cause a, a stir. A stir. Well, I think you know then that my number three is Marauders by Mr. Jerry wow. Duggan. For those uh, who happen to listen for a while, Marauders has never been lower than number one since we started doing these rankings way, way back in the day. Yep. Back in the summer of 2020. Uh, Marauders was always my number one. A lot of... The... So here's the thing with me and Marauders, Elias. Mm-hmm. I feel like Marauders had a solid act, like three-act story of um, the team getting together, and um, I loved that stuff. And we were talking about that back when we weren't even hosts of the show. We were guests Mm -hmm. with uh, with, with Kevin, and I was talking about why I liked that so much. I was convincing him. And then there was the stuff with Shaw killing Kate, Kate coming, uh, getting resurrected, uh, getting revenge on Shaw. There was that, and, and that kind of um, culminated in the Hellfire Gala. And yeah. everything around the time of Hellfire Gala and since has been pretty limp and weak to me, deflated, like some of those other long, longer running X books. And it feels inessential. It's about a lot of uh, Emma's shady past before she came to Krakoa and Shaw's shady past before he came to Krakoa. I, I still like it. I like there was a great bit with Emma and Kingpin working together that I thought was like a a, a pairing of two characters that made more sense than you would think. Mm-hmm. 
But the stuff that I really loved about the book, which was like uh, Kate being a messy bitch who lives for drama and hanging out with her friends and Iceman being and boating a really around cool the BF. world. Yeah, boating around the world. Iceman having a new boyfriend and also just like all of them being messy together and it being OK that they're messy because Krakoa supports them and like they can go and get drunk and be safe. Yeah. Um, I loved, and now all of this flashback stuff is just not the Marauders book I fell in love with. So for it being so meaningful to me and so thrilling to me, it will it's still very highly placed, but the recent issues have left me a little cold. Yeah, and that's the reason why Marauders was so far down my list. I've always been kind of, you know, more middling on it than you have, but it's felt aimless, and I have no idea. I could not tell you what's currently going on in Marauders. I could tell you that like Excalibur's got stuff with four characters representing the humors, and Richter is doing some trying to learn magic. I could not tell you what is going on in Marauders. I couldn't even tell you who's currently important to that book, other than like Emma and Sebastian Shaw, and I can't remember what they're doing, which sucks, because I know you really like that book, and yeah, I don't know what's going on in it, and it's a shame. It's okay. I mean, it was most of a good book that kind of overstayed its welcome. It's getting relaunched by Steve Orlando, and I love Steve Orlando, so I mm. bet um, he, I really liked his Midnighter run, and I thought his Justice League books were pretty good. Mm-hmm. So I think, and and if there's one person who can write a messy ensemble who lives for drama, it's Steve Orlando. That's true. So That's um, true. So I think that... um. I'm optimistic that uh, that could come back. But yeah, Marauders is going to have a bit of a blemish for um, for going out with a whimper, not a bang. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to like the new Marauders anymore. I don't really like Steve Orlando's writing. It just, it doesn't, it's never connected with me. Like, even the stuff everyone's like, it's really good. I'm like, it is good. I just don't really like it. I think he's, he's, yeah. he's talky in a way that doesn't feel interest, not interesting. It's talking in a way that I'm my eyes glaze over when I read the big, the big balloons instead sure. of being really captured by it. That makes sense. I, I but hope we will uh, see. Yeah. And I'm hoping that you are surprised. Uh, yeah, what's your number me three? Too. My number three trial of Magneto. Oh yeah. Um, we haven't gotten to trial of Magneto on my list. So let's no. talk about it when we get to, to mine. Mm-hmm. What's your number two? My number two. Well, there's only two titles left. So I guess, uh, well, yeah. Um, is House of X Powers of 10. Okay. Maintaining okay. its number two spot as it's had on Maintaining my list. Maintaining number two. Okay, my number two is the Hickman X-Men stuff. Great. The main, that main title that is now wrapped. Great stuff. Good ending. We've talked ad length about it. I don't think we need to talk more about it. No. Same with, I know what your number one is, but say it anyway. My number one is Trial of Magneto. And mine is House of X Powers of 10, a no it has never been dethroned for a while i thought x factor might dethrone it but then it got unsummarily canceled so here we are we don't need to say more about house of x Prize of 10 so let's talk about leah williams new series new mini series trial of magneto all right i love leah williams i love her writing um i think i've read everything she's written for marvel so far the First thing I was aware of her on was when she was writing, um, what was that weird book called? X Men Black. No, uh, I read X Men Black when it came out, but I didn't really clock her name. It was the um, Age the of X Men. Oh yes. Uh, was it called like Extremists or something? Yes, Extremists. I don't think that was it. It was another. No, it was it was Extremists. Okay, well I'll take. I'll, I I can't remember what the name of that team was. 
but I loved that book. She had all of these great takes on these characters that like were so obvious. I didn't see why people had never done them before. That was also the book that had this really compelling romance between uh, Blob and Psylocke, who like found this spiritual connection about how they both dealt with body dysmorphia that I was like, this is great shit. And um, her X Factor had a lot of ideas in it, but wasn't as um, as coherent to me for a bunch of like editorial reasons. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it seems like a lot of stuff was uh, happening behind the scenes. But Trial of Magneto is back to Leah firing on all cylinders. And um, not only is like her character work as good as it was, but like she's honed her style in the last four years. She wrote a book about... Um, about all the shape-shifting guys teaming up. That was like a nothing of a book, that, but it was kind of fun. And I can like see how she's gotten to be a better writer over her last couple of years at Marvel. And now she's like three years better than she was when she first started. And um, Trial of Magneto is a fucking triumph. Just like every scene answers the question I had at the end of the previous scene. So I'll be like, I wonder how Quicksilver feels about all of this. And I turn the page and then Quicksilver shows up and he tells you how he feels about all of this. And then like, uh, you're like, well, if Quicksilver feels that way, how does like his ex-wife feel about this? And then they'll bring in Crystal of the Inhumans, the Avengers. Just like, whenever I'm wondering something, Leah Williams is right there with me with a great answer and a compelling scene playing out uh, what I wanted to know. And that's fucking Mm -hmm. wonderful. I have to concur. Trial of Magneto has been excellent on all levels. I love a good murder mystery. This has a lot of the aspects of it. It's probably not a fair play mystery in that, you know, we have all the clues and we can piece it together, but I'm okay with that because I'm, it's hard to do that for like a superhero universe, Uh, especially with something as weird and wild and wonderful as, you know, Scarlet Witch being killed, but was she killed? Is she back now? did Magneto have anything to do with it? What does he know? Why is he acting the way he is? And to be well, clear, it's just because been, he's Magneto. We've been told the answers to that question. It's just like, um, there's so much more to it. Like Magneto has taken yeah. responsibility for the death, her death, but like, there's so many unanswered questions about that. Yeah. Just um, really good at, I guess what, what Leah Williams is really good at is she has this like empathy at parceling out uh, information to the reader. Mm-hmm. And she's she's always at a pace where I'm like, uh, where just as I'm starting to wonder about something, there it is. So good. So good. Yeah. Only and reason it's number X. three is because, you know, it's hard to dethrone House of X powers of 10. Yeah, absolutely. And I just really, really loved a lot of the issues of Hickman's X-Men. Uh, you don't got to justify yourself. It's your list, and I think it's a good one. <laughs> Even if I have Marauders at number, like, 13. Ah, well, it's a complicated world. <laughs> That's been Baseline X. Thank you for, oh, for thank you. sitting through with this. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a long time. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's been a long episode, and um, we're almost to the end of it. But before we go, um, we should check in about uh, the rest of the Marvel Universe. So, Elias, do you have a book you have selected as your uh, heavyweight champion, dethroning your previous heavyweight champion, and uh, becoming your new favorite Marvel ongoing or series? Yes, and disappointingly it's also the final issue it was guardians of the galaxy number 18 dethroned my previous winner which i don't remember what i should write this down every every time i say this i'm like i don't remember what the last one was um but but you're talking about last last recently uh finished guardians run yeah yeah uh the the final issue of of that is dethroned all the rest because I just, I was rocking out to it and I'm still thinking about it now and I'm still disappointed that it was the last issue. 
Uh, and I'm sure either he stepped away from it because, you know, he's got other book responsibilities and it would have just been too much, uh, especially because now he's taking over. He's taking over Venom. He's writing Sword. Um, he's finishing up Gamma Flight. I don't know if that's going to continue. That's a miniseries. He's writing X-Men. Um, no, he's not writing the main oh, X-Men right. book. Uh, that's Jerry Duggan. Duggan's writing X-Men. Um, <laughs> we're talking about Ewing. But yeah, he's, he's yeah, taking Ewing. on a lot of books. And um, I I mean, we might know by the time this episode comes out, but I have a feeling we're going to find out what Hickman's next thing is, and it might be connected to the Guardian stuff. Uh, I guess we'll find out. We'll, have, we'll <laughs> have to see. But yeah, Guardians number 18 closed off The Last Annihilation, uh, and it just had a lot of really good you know, character stuff. We finally we got a really nice tender moment between Peter Gamera and Richard Ryder. Uh, and after coming off the Annihilation, you know, all of that stuff, and then going into this issue, it just reminded me of how much, I guess, love and, you know, care went into this run of Guardians of the Galaxy to honor and create more of this series instead of just reflexively either rewriting what came before or rehashing what came before because it's a greatest hits book. Totally. And as I was going down my uh, highest scoring comics recently, uh, that final issue of Guardians was very high for me. But it is not my champion. What is your champion? So since the last time we met, there has not been a new issue of Immortal Hulk. Um, and I, I got a feeling the final issue of Immortal Hulk is going to come back with a vengeance. But until that time, my top Marvel book and my heavyweight champion is the Shang-Chi miniseries, or uh, ongoing series by the miniseries team. Uh-huh. By, uh, well uh, worth yeah, it. Well yeah, well learned. worth it. You got Gene Luen Yang writing, and what I love about it is I feel like every so often Marvel realizes they have a character who is connecting, but they don't know what story to tell about them. And so what they do is they make them go on a tour of the Marvel Universe and just kind of like establish where they stand with everybody. And that can be really fun, and that's what Shang-Chi is doing. He's building up his supporting cast while at the same time is um, uh, going, you know, mm-hmm. teaming up with and or fighting the Fantastic Four and Iron Man and Doctor Doom and Spider-Man. And you're just like seeing what all his relationships are with all these different characters. Uh, Wolverine showed up at one point. And um, and you see uh, where he sits in the universe. And I really like it. it. It makes him feel like he's a part of it. And you see what like what corner of it belongs to him. And, no, and yeah. nobody can touch that right now. And I'm like a big uh, Iron Fist fan from way, way back. So um, that he's been the representative of like the mystical martial arts stuff. But I'm happy to give it to Shang-Chi. He's, his comic is great. Yeah, it's been excellent all around. Can't wait to see more issues. I'm so glad that we got an ongoing after that mini. And I'm so glad that, you know, Jin Luen Yang is getting not necessarily more recognition, but that he's able to keep working in this way. Uh well, that he Although seems I to hope have, it like, doesn't a... affect his, you know, his personal works. Well, I would say it seems like he has like a blank check at Marvel. They're just like, yeah, you, you're a multi-award winning, talented guy who's done great work for us in the past. Just whenever you want to do something, the, our, you know, we'll answer your calls. Yeah. I hope it's like that because he, he deserves it. He's great. Oh, yeah, he does. Have you read uh, Dragon Hoops? Yes. Yes. Really good. I really like that, especially because he's talking about getting... And deciding whether or not to go to DC at the time, which is really interesting to read, like a couple years after he's already been putting out these DC books. Yeah, love that fantastic. stuff. Yeah, love yeah. that stuff. Yes, yes, yes. All of that. Yes. It's not a Marvel book, but go read it, everyone. Absolutely. But that about covers it for us this week. It's been a long yeah. one. Oh yeah, I was expecting this to be a much shorter one, but then I realized we did a lot of talking in the first half, and then talked about one of our longest segments. Yeah. 
But um, <laughs> it's only getting people, longer. And if people uh, want to hear us talk even more lies, uh, where could they find you on the larger internet? You can find me on Twitter at Quetzalish. That's Q U E T Z E L I S H. Uh, that is not my mutant name, but uh, maybe it could be in an alternate universe. <laughs> you can also find me writing over here at multiversitycomics.com, where I have mostly been doing a lot of TV stuff recently. Hopefully, I'll do more comics stuff. It's just. TV takes a lot out of me, and there's a lot sure. of it, especially in the summer. The summer is always a lot. Uh, that's all wind, wound down, but, you know, it's a long I, tail. It's a long tail. Know. Where can they find you, Jake, on the larger interwebs? You can find me under my Twitter handle, at rambling underscore moose. Um, you can also find me on Letterboxd, at rambling moose with no underscore, if you want to see my many movie lists, including my... Uh, changing rankings of the mcu movies and you can find me on um multiversitycomics.com which is a pretty great website where i write about x-men which is a topic i have a lot of opinions about <laughs> and uh, it's not next time but uh the next we will let you know which episode it will be but we our next book club is going to be new mutants number 21 this is from the original series the slumber party issue uh and you know we're getting towards the end of the year so we're going to be doing some fun end-of-year stuff. I'm looking forward to it. You'll just have to wait and see what it is, though. It's a secret. <laughs> but until then, Excelsior. <laughs>